Welcome to episode 58 of Central Intelligence Cinema. Today we're back with Bond as we tackle a true piece of Rogertainment, 1983's Octopussy. But without further ado, hit me with our extra special Bond theme, Pierce. Beg your pardon, forgot to knock. Welcome to the CIC, initiating security clearance. Who are you? Bond. James Bond. Pussy galore. Felix Leiter. His name's Jaws. He kills people. And Stavro Lofen. Identity confirmed. Now, pay attention, 007. Welcome to Central Intelligence Cinema, a podcast dedicated to spy movies and secret agent pop culture. Bond, what do you think you're doing? Keeping the British hand up, sir. You amuse me, Mr. Bond. Do you expect me to talk? Sorry, old man. Section 26, paragraph 5. Need to know. Sure you understand. Goodbye, Mr. Bond. Coming to you from an undisclosed location where MI6 stores all of its floaty alligator submarines, it's the Central Intelligence Cinema Podcast. I'm Jason Greenberg, and with me, as always, Ben Esslinger. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Jason. And welcome back to the CIC, the spy movie podcast that on what would have been Sir Roger Moore's 96th birthday, we are recording our review of some classic Rogertainment. <laughs> yes. If, and, if A View to a Kill was the very pinnacle of Roger at James Bond, this is where he hit his stride. Yes. This is pure, pure Rogertainment. I love it. <laughs> I know it's it's where we get the silliest. Well, no, A View to a Kill is the silliest. At the but pinnacle. The pinnacle of silliness. But it kind but. of feels like this one's where he made the jump from, we're still trying to play it serious, yes. to I am collecting this paycheck and <laughs> riding the humor horse as far as I can get it. Indeed, indeed. Well, I mean, this was the one where they had to lure him back with a shit ton of money so they could go up against Connery and never say never again. Right. So, uh, but yeah, we are here to talk about Octopussy. 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 We're, we're here to talk about Octopussy. <laughs> I love it. I love Louis Jordan in mean, this movie. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I, I until I rewatched this movie, I honestly thought that uh, Sean Connery's delivery of "pushy" was probably the best way to say that particular word. But I have to give Louis Jordan points. His got some finesse that wasn't there it's, in the original Connery delivery. There, he's really got some panache when it comes to that one. <laughs> but uh, yeah, today we are back with Bond. Grab your tennis racket, some loaded dice, and a white dinner jacket. <laughs> Not all necessarily in that order. That's right. As we present the stuffed sheep's head dinner that is our review of Octopus. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, should we get into this sucker? It's, we got a mouthful to go, so we probably should. All right. Roger Moore is Ian Fleming's James Bond 007 in Octopussy. In the tradition of the great James Bond films, Octopussy has everything. Elegant palaces and beautiful women. I'm Octopussy, and you are James Bond. 007 license to kill. Am I to be your target for tonight? This is Bond at his best, hitting an all-time high in Octopussy. Step on it! Oh, 
Okay, Octopussy, the 13th official chapter in the James Bond series, released in 1983, directed by none other than John Glenn and my God. The Glenniest of Glens. <laughs> the Glenniest of Glenn movies. This He John Glenned so hard in this movie, good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> just, just all the jump scares and birds and... Every monkey's screeching. And Tarzan yells. Tarzan yells. It's all in here. It's his second Bond where he served as director. He was second unit director on Honor Majesty's Secret Service, The Spy Who Loved Me, and Moonraker. He also directed uh, For Your Eyes Only, A View to a Kill, The Living Daylights, and License to Kill. And for folks like Jason, uh, he was also second unit director on the 1978 Superman. Well, so, uh, there's a there's a lot of that kind of stuff. There's there's a very incestual thing going on a lot in eighties movies because everything was made in England back in the day. Yeah, a lot of cross pollination in that era. But uh I, I just have to say too, this is the Bond movie that really hooked me as a Bond fan when I was a kid, because this was the first one I saw in the theater. <laughs> Impossibly. I don't know how my parents were like, let's take our kid. <laughs> Because 83, I'm like nine. (laughs) At nine years old, they took me to a movie called Octopussy. But the 80s were a different time, They They were a different time. (laughs) Parenting was a whole different ball of wax back then. Yeah, yeah, I mean... My mom, so I, my, I think I've said before, my first Bond movie in the theaters was Moonraker. Uh-huh. So I would have been about the same age when that happened. Yeah. But, but my mom feels more appropriate. Well, yeah, because my mom's <laughs> like, well, there's lasers and spaceships. This will be right up Jason's alley. Right. I think the Bond part was secondary to the fact that there were spaceships and lasers. Sure. Right. But I, as I've also mentioned, I, I watched a lot of these movies with my grandmother and whatnot. So I had yeah. some Bond exposure prior to that. So I'm like, well, this cool guy. With lasers and spaceships, seems like it would be a great fit. Let's do that, Mom. I think that's an excellent <laughs> idea. But, I mean, we think we can all agree that in terms of content and certainly titling, um, <laughs> Moonraker seems a little more appropriate for an eight-year-old than yeah. Octopus. I think it says a lot about who I am as a person today. <laughs> Definitely seeing James Bond doing rocket ships and laser beams absolutely says a lot to who I am today. <laughs> indeed, indeed. As far as writing goes, um, George McDonald Fraser, Richard Maybaum, who R- Maybaum obviously has done tons and tons of stuff. Um, he did Thunderball, Goldfinger, The Spy Who Loved Me. And then, of course, Michael G. Wilson, who also worked on For Your Eyes Only, License to Kill, Skyfall. And I mean, it's Michael G. Wilson. He's got his hand in everything, even now. So they take pre- for the screenplay. Plot is mostly original. However, the the title is taken from the Fleming short story collection, Octopussy in the Living Daylights. And there is the scene that's adapted from the short story, Property of a Lady, which is the auction scene. And then the events of the short story make up part of Octopussy's background, which is explained lengthily, I, I might add, while Bond has his stay at the Octopussy... At the Octopussy uh, Exposition Castle? Yes. <laughs> it really is the Exposition Castle. That's all the exposition happens there. Good Lord. I mean, this is so classic Bond. I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but man, all the exposition happens when he's having sex with people. Or visiting women. All of it. <laughs> anyway. It's the 
<laughs> Exposition conquest, if you will. I mean, you could take my silence about that comment as a no shit, Ben, but I don't know if you'd want to or not. Of course. I mean, it's a Bond movie, right? This is this is true. The director of photography was Alan Hume, who's the, done- The. The. Alan Hume. Alan Hume, who's done everything. He's done Eye of the Needle, which we talked about with those fellows, the Spyhards. He did Runaway Train, A Fish Called Wanda- and then uh, in the same year as this movie, he did a little uh, indie sci-fi movie called Return of the Jedi. I still haven't seen that yet. No? no. Have you seen it? Is it any good? I mean, it's pretty good aside from there's this moment towards the end where these little uh, teddy bears come to life and they have spears and stuff. It's, it's really unbelievable. So it's like a horror movie. Kind of, yeah. Uh, okay. I mean, I've heard a lot of people say that... Uh, I've heard the Star Wars fans tell me that it's a frightening thing to watch. Um, I didn't realize it was because it was a horror movie. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> Hume went on to also do A View to a Kill. So he's he knows his Bond stuff. Yep. Editing-wise, the editors were Peter Davies, who's done a lot of Bond work. And then Henry Richardson also worked on Octopussy as well as A View to a Kill as a consulting editor. As far as editing goes, I mean, I feel like a lot of this is just doing the cues that John Glenn is giving. Because this is, more than anything, this is a John Glenn movie. It's a John Glenn joint. It really is. I have to say, for as as ridiculous as this movie is... And it is ridiculous. And it is ridiculous. But man, the stunt work and the visual effects are done really, really well in this movie. Uh, yeah, I, I have to say, I mean, of the older, latter-day Roger movies, yes, uh, the fight stuff seemed a lot more convincing. I feel yeah. like he was involved in more of it, too. Yeah. But as you pointed out when we were talking about this last night, the stunt double was actually pretty good for him. Yeah. Looked, their, their principal. Yeah, uncanny yeah, resemblance, I, I think especially the plane sequence well, at the end. I think it a lot to do with the hair yeah <laughs> you know i think they either put a really durable roger wig on this guy or he just had hair very much like rogers yeah but most of the time when i watch these it's almost comical to when they put the stunt double in for roger because roger's like oh i have to run no <laughs> get bald to do it right. um but this one actually either he was doing a lot of the stunts and just looked enough that you didn't catch it yeah or roger's like eh, for the money i suppose <laughs> yeah. um but yeah all the visual stuff just felt at the caliber i would expect it to be at. yeah for i sure. kept thinking Every time I saw something like, well, Tom Cruise would do that himself. But I've never thought about that in terms of a Roger movie before. Because yeah. most of the time it's like, well, Tom Cruise would have done that completely differently. <laughs> so the level that we had of the stunts, particularly the aerial stuff, was yeah. super impressive for the time. I don't know why so many people wear parachutes in such a normal environment. But it's good that they did because it really would have ruined the entire plot of the movie if I thought that they were wearing them just for safety for stunts sake. Right. <laughs> But um, we've got John Richardson, who is a VFX legend, who did this stuff. And the, the pre-title sequence work in particular is so good in this movie. Interesting little fun fact I found out in an interview with John Richardson during the pre-title sequence. So essentially when they, to do that scene, they tore the roof off of a Jaguar and they mounted a full-scale model of the plane, the, the little micro jet, and they put it on a pole. It was on a gimbal so they could anchor angle they could right. manipulate the angle of the plane so that the wing was constantly blocking out the pole but the funny thing i heard in an interview was that so they had to drive this thing through this hangar several times and on the final one <laughs> the th the throttle on the car they couldn't turn it off essentially and so <laughs> and so 
he couldn't stop the car. And so so he got done making his pass through the hangar. He had to turn off the, the car completely and then just navigate the thing so he didn't hit anything on this airbase or oh whatever. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Ah, uh, Lucas Electronics, the Prince of Darkness. Yes. <laughs> but nonetheless, an incredible uh, visual effect Honestly, there. and I mean... And it holds up even to this day. It does. But even some of their compositing stuff, like when they, they showed the Louis Jordan's castle up on the thing that clearly yeah. was not up there for real. Right. But it didn't have that same level of floaty. Look, not, here's a painted thing. Yeah. It looked, yeah. It, the, the stuff was very, it was it was good in that it was not noticeable, I guess yes. is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And, you know, especially in a film like James Bond, it should it never be noticeable. Yeah. Because that movie's, this movie's not about special effects. Right. You know, right. so it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's color. Yeah. And even, I will even go so far as to say, now, you're always going to notice back projections when they happen. Well, yeah. But I feel like the ones in this movie are far less egregious than some of the other ones. I mean, like the shots inside the cockpit when Roger's in the plane avoiding the missile and stuff like that, they're not terrible. They're not. And I think that's a lot of that is John Glenn too. Like John Glenn's really good at kind of being crafty and clever about making things look real. I think he was just kind of at the height of his prowess in that respect. His glenniness. So the budget for this movie was $27.5 million. In today's numbers, that's about $84.7. And the movie made $67.9, which in today's numbers is about $209.3 worldwide at the box office. So pretty good. I mean, it's basically three times the budget. And the movie was also competing with Never Say Never Again in that same year, which comparatively to $67.9 made 55.4. So, so Roger uh, edged him out. By just a uh, just ten mil, yes. But uh, yes, well, well, <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> John Barry did the score. Which what a I, surprise! What a surprise! I do love the score, though. Actually, I don't feel like he's over the top with hitting the James Bond theme, but they hit it at the right times. Yeah, absolutely. During the course of the movie, I do have to say, I feel like. Not, not to gig John Barry or anything, but this was not, I think, the most effective score he's ever done for a Bond film that I've no. watched. I felt like there were moments where there wasn't noticeable enough music. I, like you said, I did like... I felt it is the, a bit sparse. Yeah, the Bondiness was correct. He hit all mm-hmm. the right notes where that needed to be, but it just didn't feel like there was a lot of music driving the narrative in this one. You know, honestly, I think... I wouldn't be surprised if part of it, I hate to say it, but Rita Coolidge's song is so bad. It's an all-time low. It, I mean, <laughs> I apologize to anybody who loves this song, but I cannot stand. It's For a movie I love so much, I I really Did, dislike this song. Didn't and it this song rank the same on our list when we ranked the movies? I think it the did. It was very low. It was very <laughs> low. And it, she's not doing John Barry any favors with a song like that. No. Like you can't incorporate a song like that into the into the score except for maybe once. Yeah, they only did it in the lovey-dovey parts. Yeah, exactly. Whereas, like, you think about, like, The Living Daylights, which which is a banger of a score. And you've got two different pop songs in there that help propel that, that score. You've got the Pretender song, which kicks absolute ass. Mm-hmm. And then even, even the song by AHA, which is not great. It works really well, though, as a component of the score, whereas this is just it's not great. Not everyone's going to be a winner. That's right. Getting into all the characters and all that sort of thing. Obviously, Sir Roger Moore is back. 
I think he's fantastic. <laughs> I think he's very Roger Moore. <laughs> exactly. Originally, Moore was not planning on coming back. Even then, even at Octopussy, he thought he was too old. But in the meantime, James Brolin did screen test for the role with Maud. Um, you can actually find it online. And did fairly good screen test before Moore finally sort of changed his mind. And by changing his mind, I mean they offered him more money. Sometimes that's all you need. Well. <laughs> Let me ask you this, though. Well, if you're going to offer me that much. How do you think Josh Brolin would have gone over with the the fans out there with them casting an American to play James yeah, Bond? I think that's the the sticking point, really. I mean, I feel like it was a. I mean, physically, intro- he's right for it, yeah, right? For sure, he looks he looks and the he's part. got the acting chops. Yeah, I don't know how well he does an English accent. Yeah, but I mean, for that kind of money, he probably would have figured that out. Probably. I think he was dating Barbara Streisand. No, that was later. I was say, <laughs> she would have helped him figure it out. Sure. <laughs> um, but I just, you know, it's such a it's such a weird thing, right? You know, James Bond has always been English, mm-hmm. right? And yet we have tons of British people coming over here and taking all of our roles. Superman, yeah, English. <laughs> Batman, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we lucked out that we got an American Captain America for Pete's sake, but boy, that could have been a bullet because I know Chris Hemsworth also tested for Captain America, oh, geez, which would have really? got us an Australian Captain America. Back then, it was far less prevalent where you would see English actors or British right. actors take over American roles, but it's almost sacrilegious to consider putting an American in yeah. as James Bond. Right. I mean, you can get away with having a Scottish Bond. Sure. But American? Yeah. They got away with an Australian too, but but still, <laughs> yes. I think that would have. I think that would have raised a lot of hackles. That means you know somewhere in the great multiverse, there's a timeline where Roger Moore's like, "No, I think I'm fine," <laughs> and James Brown's like, "Good, I got this. My kid's gonna be Thanos someday." And then off he goes. And off he goes. He did like twelve movies in that timeline, right? He's still James Bond now, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so getting to the ladies, obviously, Octopussy is played by Maude Adams, who is fantastic. I love her character, and she carries it well and i like her much more in this than in the man with the golden gun although it's largely because i really don't like the man with the golden gun movie very much but it does really i mean it's just uh, that fun house scene just always gets to me i think it's Hervé villachez that always throws me off on that one i also don't like the fact that rogers bond hits Maud adams actually in that movie and i'm just not cool with that anyway (laughs) uh moving right along um we also have magda played by christina wayborn who hits it out of the park as far as I'm concerned. She is fantastic in this movie. She does a bunch of her own stunts. Yeah. She broke several toes during the fight scene at the final, <laughs> in that final thing where they- Fully committed. The, fully committed, yeah. When the octopusy ladies are are attacking Kamal Khan's palace, she broke a bunch of toes during that. She did the flippy thing off the balcony herself. Several times. <laughs> Cirque du Soleil. So, yeah, very Cirque du Soleil. We've also got an octopusy girl played by Mary Staven, who also played Kimberly Jones in A View to a Kill, the uh, Berg Marine driver. <laughs> I thought I recognized yeah, her. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, we've got uh, Bianca, uh, the girl in the uh, pre title sequence, uh, played by Tina Hudson, who was uh, <clears throat> only 17 during filming, but. Hopefully she was 18 by the time the film was released. Maybe this is the girl that Stevie Nicks was singing about. (laughs) 
17. <laughs> She's like the white winged I don't know. So, I mean, at least there's no intimate scenes between Roger and this very, very, very young lady who probably just needs an ice cream. Yeah, I feel like we're going to say this. We've already said it once. I feel like we're going to say it twice, but, you know, it was a different time. It was a different time. 1983, man. Yeah, we're going to say 1983 a lot in this movie. Yeah, 83 and a lot. It was a different time because as far along as Bond films had come by this point in time, they still had a very long way to go. <laughs> indeed, indeed. As far as all the other major characters, Lois Maxwell is back as Money Penny. And I will say, too, that at this point, Money Penny and Bond are perfectly age appropriate. It's <laughs> true. Which is hilarious because then they brought in Penelope Smallbone, played by Michaela Clavel, who who never made it past this movie. No, no apparently not. <laughs> but... She's there. Um, then we've got uh, Robert Brown as M. Um, this is the first one where he replaced Bernard Lee. I was wondering about that. He does a good job, but he's definitely more of a Rogers M yeah. than, a, than a Connery M. Yeah, well, and he, he certainly he doesn't have that I'm constantly pissed off at you attitude. His is more kind of like, well, that's just 007. Yeah, you know? just a lot of eye rolling and... Yeah, smirking. <sighs> yeah, smirking and, and what have you. Desmond Llewellyn is back as Q. And then, oh my goodness. Louis, Louis Jordan as Kamal Khan is just... He's delicious. Like, everything he says. Octopussy. Octopussy. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> and everything is pronounced like that. Everything comes out of his mouth just... Octopussy. What <laughs> yeah, it, and not to knock Louis Jordan, because I know he's a good actor, seen him in lots of other things, but he almost has a Pepe Le Pew sort of French facade, you know? It's but all, he is French. I so. know, but, but I'm saying, unlike many other French actors out yes. there, he really pushes up the Frenchiness of his French, <laughs> yes. naturally existing French. Yes. He's very, how should I say? There's just... <laughs> There's just something about his voice, though. I mean, I need his voice as ASMR. Like, it is just... Just reading a like just a, reading a recipe. Yeah, or directions to assemble a, yeah, a cabinet exactly. or something. Yeah, like, 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 he should be like the voice that should like AI his voice on uh, vocal instructions for building Ikea furniture. <laughs> and everybody would get it right the first right. time. Exactly, because everything is crystal clear, just very well pronounced. Then you but... will take the hexagonal <laughs> wrench and you will turn it slowly to the left. <laughs> it's wonderful. Uh, and then we have Victor Maitland. Oh, wait. I mean, Stephen Burkhoff. <laughs> Stephen Burkhoff as Orloff, who is just, he is so over the top in this movie. Oh, I know. Just maniacal, crazy, just. Uh, he's exactly what I want from a Bond villain. And every yeah. single, I just want him to be. And have the worst possible motivation for doing anything. That's it's what makes so it even dumb. Better. Yeah, it's just so haphazard and never... I want the Soviet Union to win everything, so let's nuke everything. It's the ultimate, this is never going to work, maniacal villain plan. Right. Well, it's funny. My, my kid was watching this with me on my second go-around, and she says, is that supposed to be a Russian accent? <laughs> and I'm like, no, I think he's German. She's like, all right, that explains a little bit. <laughs> yeah. they didn't, he didn't even bother. He's like, 
You know, it sounds close enough. Then we've got uh, Mishka and Grishka, the uh, twins, <laughs> played by actual twins, David and Tony Meyer. So that's fun, which, <laughs> I mean, they, they're fine. They're what they are. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mean Martin Short 1 and Martin Short 2? <laughs> Walter Gattel is back as Gogol, who is, Yay! he's great. I mean, he's always great. He just, he knows his role. Yeah, and he does it well. Absolutely. And, yeah. And then we've got a tennis pro, VJ Armitage, who uh, is a tennis pro in a Bond movie. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> he will, he's playing the type. Right. I guess. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I do find him charming in it. Oh, absolutely. So so there's that. <laughs> so VJ yeah, Singh was in Star Trek for The Voyage Home, you know, the one with the whales. Yeah. Um, <laughs> He played. He had a very bit part. He played a, a Starfleet captain that ship was knocked out of power when the gigantic floating shit whale log came by and knocked everything out. <laughs> and he has the uh, he has the awesome line that says, "We have to rig a solar sail to generate power." Uh, I would use it in his accent, but um, <laughs> that might I'll, be. Uh, I'll let you all imagine. Yeah. <laughs> um, he was also in a sitcom back in the eighties that was a it was what? a yeah it was a Yakov Smirnoff oh vehicle called What a Country. He was in What a Country. He was in What a Country. Wow, I remember yeah. that show. He was a main character in it too. He's one of the people in. Uh, Yakov Smirnov's class. Everyone here will note I have no problem making fun of Yakov Smirnov's <laughs> accent for reasons. For um, reasons. But yeah, you know what? He was he was really great in this. He is really likable, extremely likable in this. Which makes it even worse when he ends up getting yeah when he gets killed the, off screen, uh, sort of he off gets screen. Yo-yoed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sawblade yo-yo. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> like my I don't know. That's a cover band, but I don't know the name of the, the band I'm covering for. It sounds like a punk band though. Yeah, Sawblade Yo-Yo. Yeah. You know what that is? That is a neo-Japanese punk band. (laughs) Sawblade (laughs) Yo-Yo. I like it. Sign (laughs) them. We've also got Jim Fanning, played by Douglas Wilmer, who (laughs) I find him strangely interesting, I don't know, in the auction scene. Well, you know what's funny about that character is like, I mean, everybody in a Bond movie knows who Bond is, right? Right. But- they have history, and there's no exposition about any history. Right. He's such a good actor, he just conveys sort of a, oh, yes. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah, you just, you just... You can always appreciate another set of eyes. Yeah. <laughs> and then we've got 009, who I had to bring up, Andy Bradford, just because he's a kind of an interesting guy, largely known for being a stuntman. He was in For Your Eyes Only, Never Say Never Again which is crazy that he was in both Never Say Never Again and this movie. It's, um, it's, that, it's that English stuff, man. Yeah. Movies in England. Yeah, he was in uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and was both an uncredited actor and a stuntman on a uh, little movie you may have heard of called uh, Star Wars A New Hope. Oh, that was one of those movies like Return of the Jedi, right? Just a little indie... Uh, but it's not a horror jump? movie. It's not a horror well, movie in this clearly respect. with A New Hope, unless it's, you know, the rebirth <laughs> of all the, the space vampires. <laughs> right. So, weirdly enough, too, IMDb says he's six foot eight. I have a hard time believing that. Because uh, when he was fighting Mishka and Grishka, he did not seem that tall. I don't, they, they were doing a lot of lower than eye line camera shots so maybe, in that one. Maybe so he maybe, was that tall. Maybe it was know. just the angle they were getting. Yeah, I don't but, know. But uh, you know who else was tall in this? The guy that played Gobinda, he was tall in this. Yes, yes. Gobinda played by Kabir Betty. He is awesome in this. Probably the best. I won't say he's the best Bond henchman I've ever seen, but in terms of presence. And intensity? Yeah. 
Just yeah. every scene, his eyes are like, I am smoldering at you. He's just so good because he, yeah. he he comes off both capable, smart. Yes. And no real hook, right? He doesn't yeah. have a bowler that cuts heads off of statues. But he can he crush the shit out of some dice, Out of though. some loaded dice, right? <laughs> but, I mean, everything about him was just silent but deadly kind of not that silent but deadly. <laughs> everything about he it just he projected menace. Yes. And competence yes. in every scene he was Absolutely. in. And I mean, up until that point in time, they weren't really generating competent henchmen in no, Bond they were, films. No, they were just henchmen who had like a, just some sort of some sort of fancy weapon. Or deformity that or got defor- turned yeah. to their own advantage. Right. Whereas he was just competent and menacing and I mean the scenes where he would be yelling at underlings, he was very commanding. <laughs> right. And I mean he and he was doing it in his own language. There was nothing there that didn't say this guy was just one hundred percent competent. Until he let Louis Jordan convince him to go out and fight him on the outside of an airplane. <laughs> his one, his one like mistake. Like, if he just picked that time to say <laughs> no, he might not even have died in a fiery plane crash. Because I feel like gravity would have won that fight if they just kept doing barrel rolls. Yeah. Right? Well, and uh, right? <laughs> right? Movie would have been over. Yeah, I'm getting off topic here, but I'm just saying, as far as Bond villain goes, he, he, I think he may have this burned into my memory. It's just, I don't know. I, yeah. I just, I just, I liked the guy. He seemed far more intimidating than, you know, a guy with a bowler hat. I'm just saying. Yeah. Well, because he has free will to actually think and do things, whereas Oddjob was just told, kill. Yeah. <laughs> You're done. Well, that's about it. Should we uh, get into this sucker? Yeah. Let's do it. All right, so the uh, pre-title sequence. This is interesting. That th- is this the only pre-title sequence that's a non sequitur that has nothing to do with the movie? I can't recall if there's any other pre-title sequences that are so standalone because this is clearly has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. And that being said, it's one of my favorites. I love it. It's fantastic. But first, I'll go back, and I know you always chuckle whenever I mention the gun barrel, because us Bond guys, we always got to talk about the gun barrel. (laughs) Jason's just shaking his head over there. Uh, Yeah, there was a lengthy discussion about gun barrels not too long ago, (laughs) which I'll save for another podcast. Yeah, But uh, in my opinion, I feel like Raj does the second best gun barrel walk of, of all the Bonds. Who's the first? Dalton isn't. Dal- Dalton's is pretty great. Dalton has a great gun barrel walk. Pierce is probably a close third to Roger's second. Roger might be ahead just because of the flares he wears. <laughs> oh, yeah. All the, all the bell bottoms really accentuate the swishy movement. Yeah, the swishy movements just makes it more dramatic. Anyway, so the pre-title sequence. So Bond is, pulls in with this horse trailer. He's driving like a, a Range Rover of some sort with a, with a horse trailer with a quote-unquote horse in the back. You'll ruin it. Um, and then uh, he gets out, and, and he's got a, one of those good old reversible... Oh, my. One of those, those good old reversible jackets that, that go from being a... Uh, uh, what would you call that type of jacket? A before? leisure wear jacket a leisure- to a fully decorated military jacket? <laughs> yeah, <I'm> that. Look, <laughs> looking at you, Tom Cruise. Exactly. Where did he get that from? Where did Tommy Boy uh, mm. get his idea from? I, and, uh, there are a lot of things in this Ghost movie Protocol. that make me think... Was Tom referencing some of this and some mm-hmm. of his stuff? Oh, yeah. I mean, we have literally a train and an airplane fight in this movie. <laughs> yes. Very, very similar. So he's preparing his his little uh, disguise. And I do love disguise. Oh, love, my God. I love a good disguise, man. So, <laughs> so he's got the reversible jacket. He's got the reversible hat. 
Reversible hat. Which starts already wearing the pants. Yeah, he starts as the flat cap and it somehow converts into the most crisp general's hat or whatever kind of hat that is. <laughs> so just as he's about to go off and do things in disguise, then uh Bianca is there to uh, oh wait, wait, James. Here's don't forget your mustache. Right. He couldn't grow the mustache. No, no. Why would he do that? And it's on slightly crooked, which I have to also point out. It's a nice touch. So he's disguised as a gentleman named Luis Toro. Sure. So anyway, right next door to all this uh, horse jumping and running and what have you, there's an airbase. Um, and Because that always happens. Yes, of course. I mean, it's, it's Cuba. They don't have a lot of land. Right. So maybe. Sure. <laughs> because nothing keeps a horse at ease like planes taking off. Correct. But <laughs> Correct. So anyway, so Bond walks into this hangar. And, and I love as he's walking in. And he's walking past these guards and he stops and he flips the guy's shirt pocket or whatever it is. Yeah, like, like his come on, ID fix badge, that. exactly. Like trying to be like official, official or whatnot. He was always very good at doing those things because there's a there's another moment, I forget which other Roger movie, where he does something very similar. And I feel like maybe that's like an improv thing. Uh, it totally had to be. <laughs> so he walks in and uh, there's this fighter plane that's holding some kind of device in the tip. Who knows what it is? Some sort of 80s ridiculous neon tube. Yeah, exactly. Radar dish. And I'm just like... That goes in the nose cone of this plane? Why is it lit up? Right. This thing doesn't open in the middle of combat or something. What is it, a laser? It's a laser. It's a laser. It just felt like every bad prop from every 80s movie and TV show you ever Absolutely. saw. Absolutely. What's funny is it's the 80s version of the 60s bomb that has lots of like weird turny things that do nothing. <laughs> yes, exactly. In fact, you know, it, it sort of reminded me of the lasers from the Matt Helm film that we watched. It was yes. just a lit up thing that did nothing. <laughs> right, exactly. So then the real Toro walks into the hangar and sees Bond walking towards his plane. So he's like, what, what is that? But anyway, before he can get to him, Bond goes behind this little barrier thing so that the other soldiers can't see this, this crazy device in the cone of this plane. Right. So he goes back in there and there's a there's a guy doing stuff and and bond judo chops him judo chop <laughs> that's not the first time i said that during this movie either <laughs> so he chops the guy knocks him out and then he starts mounting this uh silly little bomb on the plane but of course the jig is up the the little barrier goes down and and the real toro standing there with a bunch of troops and Para paratroopers this is important for you to to remember there's paratroopers in about three minutes <laughs> sure <laughs> so <laughs> because as you all know because they're paratroopers they wear parachutes everywhere they go always 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 got to be prepared standard man standard military protocol to wear your parachute everywhere mm. you go listen you don't you never know when you're going to fall off a cliff or out of a plane or the back of a truck the back of a truck we'll get to that so, so Raj is face to face with the real Toro and he's like, oh, so you're a Toro too. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, yes, this is, uh, I don't know if I've mentioned this yet, but this is kind of right where Roger Moore starts starting every sentence with well. Octopussy is the, the beginning of the well <laughs> sensation that's sweeping the nation. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, so they take him away and they put him in the back of this truck 
of these paratroopers. Yes, uh, <laughs> paratroopers that wear their backpack or their parachutes everywhere they go. <laughs> everywhere they go. Bond's in the back of this truck with these two paratroopers guarding him. And Bianca rolls up in the lane next to them. And she's all flirty, flirty, trying to get their attention away. And we get the head tilt from Roger, just kind of like, hey, look at that. Are you going to look at that underage girl <laughs> driving there with no clothes on? In no way is this problematic at all. Not we at all. should be fancying this 17-year-old girl. Trust but anyway. Me, keep watching the movie. There's far more problematic things than this. <laughs> That's right. So, of course, Bond notices that they both have their parachutes on. Like you do when you're a paratrooper. <laughs> he then tilts his eyes back to Bianca to try and direct their attention to her again. Well, it was always like a, huh? 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 <laughs> no. Uh-huh. You like that? Uh-huh. It was almost like one of those guys that's like in front of, like you're in uh, the red light district. Yeah. And there's the guy out front going, hey, look at that. Well, yeah, exactly. Why don't you come on yeah. in? Check <laughs> this out. <laughs> it's like Michael Keaton from Night Shift. We got teenage girls. <laughs> oh, God. So he lures their eyes away to Bianca. And right then he pulls the ripcord and the guys get taken by the parachutes, which I have a lot of questions. I spent no, some time. No, it will not work <laughs> if that's what your question yeah. is. Yes. They were not going fast enough for them to right. fully enveloped like that. Right. I spent a good half hour <laughs> checking to see if there's any sort of pressurized deployment system inside a parachute that would... Nope. Send it out fast enough to make. (laughs) Yeah. That's why they put drag lines on airplanes when they do massive parajumper troops. It's designed to make sure that it. They they go out to make sure it it deploys, but it deploys instantly after they jump out. Right. So that they get the full maximum pull out of of the chute. I mean, I don't. Know the technicalities of it. Right. I, could, I could ask my kid who does jump out of airplanes for a living, yeah. uh, but I'm pretty sure he would say the same thing. No, that will not work. <laughs> He'd be like, no, that's absolute bullshit. Because, and the reason why it wouldn't work is because when you see parachutes on the back of cars, they have a drag chute. There's a smaller parachute that pulls the larger parachute out. out. Okay. So it's a smaller amount that's capturing the wind that's pushing it out. And then it, it fully envelops because gotcha. there's a secondary thing that's pulling it. Right. So, yeah. Uh, no no they don't wear parachutes when they're not parachuting and they don't work that way next time i can save you a half hour worth of research you could just ask me and i'll tell you no all right well i digress so this is a bond movie and they it's go bye bye so they go bye bye and then he jumps into uh, bianca's range rover and he shoots out the truck tires and then it's uh see you in miami and bianca takes off and bond unlatches the uh the horse trailer mm-hmm. and uh, he gets into the bd5j microjet Wee! that Wee. sounded remarkably remarkably like an f4 phantom when flying <laughs> remarkably but i do love this jet it's mm-hmm. it's so awesome but again, we've we sort of talked about this earlier, but man, this is such a good scene. This I guess it's like an anti-aircraft missile, would you yep. call it that? And even the stuff where you see Roger inside the cockpit and he's dodging this missile right and left and the and the way they do the camera movement combined with the sound effects and everything, for a back projection, it's not terrible. It's no. pretty decent. The whole flying scene, considering when it was made. Yeah. It was pretty fabulous. Oh, absolutely. And again, when they fly the airplane through the hangar, it's it works really, really well. But um, 
Afterwards, after the aircraft missile flies into the hangar and destroys the whole hangar, we have no idea why or what I thought the... that was the whole point of him being there was to destroy that. that it was. Bleep, 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 it was, bleep, but bleep, we have no idea what that thing was or... Oh, you don't need to. You just need to know that James Bond needed to blow it up and... Mission yeah. successful. Mission successful. So he flies away, and then uh, we realize, oh, no, he's out of gas. So <laughs> so he lands. The wings go up, and he rolls into a petrol station. And, of course, this microjet runs on regular gas. Probably leaded gas. Spoiler alert. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Especially in 1983. That's not unleaded. That's leaded gas. <laughs> but then we get the great ending. Fill her up, please. And... The cue of that saxophone for the theme song almost accentuates that joke. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's so good. It's my, so good. My, it. my, my kid, she was like, that was like the ending of every bad 70s TV show. Right? <laughs> well, it even freeze phrases. Yes, exactly. Freeze frames on him. <laughs> yeah. She's like, she's like, that's like the end of a Magnum P.I. Right? <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> I love it. Now we're into the uh, title graphics and... Uh, Ugh, that terrible Rita Coolidge song. <laughs> I will say, too, these uh, Maurice Bender titles, this one in particular. It's very porny. Yeah. It felt like Playboy After Dark channel yeah, shit. Yeah. Like, really, really risque. Right up, right up to the, the arms wrapping around Roger with the gun, and the first one's clearly pointing at his junk. <laughs> I'm just like, they should have put it at a 45 degree angle so the gun barrel was just sort of dangling there between his legs for full effect. I mean, just a lot of nipples and butt cracks in this one. I mean, well, there's the one blonde girl that's got the little rhinestone strappy thing that's hiding nothing. Hiding nothing at all. It's really by far the most risque one. Like that I, I can recall. I would be willing to venture that just because of the title sequence alone, if this had been made in 85 or 86 when PG-13 came Absolutely. out, they would have got a PG-13 rating just for the title credit 100%. But this is 1983, man. So skating through that window. PG was just... Yeah, PG was you enough. Could, you could get a lot. You could get away with a lot in PG in uh, 1983. Back in the day. Yeah. So there's that. And then... <laughs> Then we're into the movie. Thank God. Yes. (laughs) So there is a lot of talk online amongst the hardcore Bond fans. A lot of Bond fans don't like the whole clown motif. And I don't know why they're so hung up on this. I feel like the horror element actually is elevated. This is just for me. This is just for my opinion. I like the fact that this movie starts with a clown who's clearly 009, who's running away, who's going to get killed. And then at the end, they mirror it with Bond in the exact same thing. So it's like, it gives you that. And granted, in a more seriously toned version of this movie, it would have been even better. Sure. Like if, if it wasn't, if John Glenn hadn't, Glenn quite so hard in this movie and made it a little bit more serious. The finale when Bond is wearing the clown suit could have been much more scary and serious. Sure. And and I don't think maybe that's why there are so many fans that have an issue with it. But like for me, I think it's I I love it. Well, I, and you know, it's funny that you bring up the horror aspect because clearly <laughs> in my mind. Somebody who genuinely appreciated this whole thing was Stephen King. (laughs) Indeed. Because I went and checked the numbers. Mm -hmm. And the book It 
didn't come out until 1986. Ah. And I'm going to be like, was, I feel like Stephen King was hanging out in Bangor, Maine. He, <laughs> like, I'm going to go see a movie today. And he goes in and he watches his James Bond movie in 1983. He's like, that's a clown with a red balloon. Hmm. <laughs> and he falls in the water and he floats. <laughs> we all float down here. Hmm. <laughs> anyway. I'm not saying that this was the impetus for It the Clown, <laughs> but I'm actually kind of saying this might have been the impetus for It the Clown, because the makeup looks like Pennywise. Yeah. The suit does not, obviously. No. But red balloons. Red balloons. Floating in water. Yeah. He's scary, and he's scared. There's an awful lot of similarity there. Uh, three years before the book came out. Uh-huh. Mr. King, if you're a listener, if you're one of the tens of listeners... <laughs> Shoot us an email. Let us know if I'm even anywhere close on this. Indeed. But yeah, so we open on East Berlin and we see the wall and the death strip. And strangely enough, right nearby is a circus tent. <laughs> because when I think the Berlin Wall and the death strip, circus. Doesn't everyone? <laughs> right. And we see the uh, clown trying to flee East Berlin and is being chased by uh, Mishka or Grishka. I don't know which one is which. I never pay attention to that. Thing two, thing one. Yeah, really exactly. So anyway, so he's running around trees and stuff and, he, and then he kind of stops and he's backing up and then he runs right into one of the twins and fights off that guy. And then he makes it to some sort of river crossing at the border. And this is weirdly cut together and I don't entirely buy it, but... I knew it was, you know, you know it's coming. Right. So he's trying to climb up this up this border at the where the river crossing is and the knife one of the Mishka or Grishka throws a knife into his back and then that sends him into the river and then that washes him ironically where he wanted to go in the first place which was across the border <laughs> well it seemed like he was making a beeline for that river on purpose right so he floats down and the twins assume he's dead or whatever and he washes up on shore and he winds up how conveniently he winds up at the residence of the british ambassador he knew right where he was going that's right i do love there's this great shot of, it's a handheld shot that's following 009 to the gates of this thing. It works really, really well. It's like, you know what's coming. You know he's he's not going to make it. And then he gets to the window door and there's these stuffy English people. Well, it's the ambassador. Um, <laughs> the ambassador and his wife. And they're inside and then he crashes through and falls and dies. And then the egg rolls out. And with that, we are back in London. Hey, look, no location card necessary. Huh. It's <laughs> like you just know where MI6 headquarters is. Well, you just have to show some red double-decker buses. It's like you don't actually need those cards very often. You know, you, you wonder if maybe they do that just for consistency's sake. You know, like, they're not going to know this one town in the movie, but we don't want them to feel like they're idiots, so we're just going to put signs on everywhere in case... Right. Because, you know, maybe there are... Maybe, look, that, maybe that is it. Maybe look, it's... I'm going to segue very quickly on something <laughs> about humanity that's been bothering me, and I've told everybody that I've been listening to for a while. But I was recently going through an Instagram discussion about a shadow that was on Jupiter, right? It was mm -hmm. being cast by Ganymede onto the planet's surface, big black spot. Gotcha. And third comment in, fake, right? <laughs> and then all these scientists and astrophysicists and people who just like space and probably have a better knowledge of how most stuff works pounce on this guy, not realizing that every time they put a picture up like this, it's the same guy. He's trolling everybody right. and going off. But then this guy's supporters come in 
and start talking about how it has to be fake because, you know, how the speed of the universe works. Why don't we see star lines like on hyperspace? And I'm like, are all these people can't be trolling people, <laughs> right? There are genuinely people out there that just don't understand things right. that a lot of people take for granted. Right. And so along those lines, yes. there have to be people that go to spy movies and movies in general. And they see that, a red double-decker bus and they and might not assume, they that, might not know. Right. Because they saw one when they were traveling out to Austin, Texas. Right. And assumes that everybody has red double decker buses, right. right? So, with British flags on them, correct, correct. So, <laughs> people, you can't assume that there are two Eiffel Towers there's the Eiffel Tower in Paris and the one in, in Las, Las Vegas. Vegas. <laughs> so, you have to really, I guess, write your cards You're trying to, to appeal the dumbest to everybody, monkey, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying, I know this is a huge tangent. I apologize to you listeners for going off on it, but you just can't assume people know things these days. I suppose not. So then we're into uh, Money Penny's office, and we get, I kind of like the little POV shot that throws the hat. It's just yep. kind, of, kind of a nod back to old school Bond. Because yes. I don't think, I don't, I think this is the only time that Raj has the hat. Well, then he never wears it. Right. But I do think this is the only interaction during the Roger era where he throws a hat like the way that Connery did. So that has to be a John Glenn thing. He's like, I want to shoot this at least once. Right. I got to get this in at least one. And he's certainly not going to go for it next time around. Right. <laughs> Nobody wears a hat. <laughs> Nobody wears a hat in the 80s. Certainly not one like that. The only person who's wearing a hat in the 80s was Harrison Ford. Right. Because he was in 1920. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, actually, he was in uh, oh, 19, uh, right, 1935, right. 1936, <laughs> and, of course, the ever-popular 1938. Like I had mentioned before, I really like the the little interaction between Raj and Lois. It feels so natural, and they're appropriately aged. And then, of course, we get the inappropriately aged Miss Smallbone. I love how he gives money penny a one one of the mums one of the mums and then gives the rest of them to Miss smallbone <laughs> and then he walks into m's office and we get that corny sigh from from miss smallbone she's like ah. uh-huh. <laughs> like like this old codger is so dreamy to her and, and you know we'll see this later on in the movie and i pointed this out in view to a kill when we did it uh-huh. that they were paying these very young women to look at roger moore like oh Oh my God! What what a what a specimen of man! What a hunk! <laughs> and I'm like, so this was started clear back a little. I mean, yeah, this is the movie before a view to a kill, right? Yes. So I don't know if there were adoring models in for your eyes only. Now, <laughs> but I feel like there might have been. Yeah. Now I will say, for a gentleman his age, mm-hmm. Raj looks great. I'm but, not saying he's not an attractive looking man. I'm yeah. just saying. That there was a lot of effort spent in the latter era of Roger finding younger finding women. younger women to make it look like they thought he was hot. <laughs> was he attractive? Yes. Was he handsome? Absolutely. Was he smoldering, smoking hot? I don't think he was smoldering, smoking hot, and live and let die. Right? <laughs> He's too pretty, and unlike Pierce Brosnan, can't bring an edge to anything. Right? Well, I don't know about that. I, we haven't gotten to Free Your Eyes Only because I will challenge you. Yeah, I think he has some edge in Free Your Eyes Only. And Free Your Eyes Only, I, you know, I'll grant you that. Here, everything is a wink and a smile and a and a I'll grant nudge, you that. nudge, breaking I mean, the fourth it, wall. Almost. Even even live and let die. 
and the spy looming. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you those, but at this point, <laughs> Moonraker on, he's just kind of yeah, wink, yeah. he's just kind of winking at everything. You think maybe it was Moonraker that killed it for him? He's like, "Well, you're going to send me to space. We're obviously getting completely ridiculous at this point." <laughs> Probably. <laughs> so, all right, so we get into M's office and we see the um, Minister of Defense and Jim Fanning are in there and uh, we get a bit of Bond in full I know everything mode. He's like, 007, what's this? Well, it's a Fabergé egg. It was brought to you by Carl Fabergé and the blah, 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 blah. And I know everything. Exactly. <laughs> but then, of course, after he goes on this long speech about where this egg came from and all these details about it, that's when M kind of almost deliciously tells him that it's a fake. Finally got you, 007. Ah, gotcha. And then we find out that the uh, the real egg is being auctioned and they suspect by a Russian. And so they're trying to figure out basically why the Russians are auctioning off some of these things. Why are they trying to amass money in the States, or not in the States, but in outside of Russia? Right. So that they don't have to move the money. So... Bond is told to go with Fanning to the auction, and so M then tells Bond of Operation Trove, which is what 009 was doing. He was trying to figure out all of this stuff, and we see the pictures of 009 dead, and that he had the egg with him, but there's not much else to go off of. And that's when we get that line from Bond where he's he's looking at the... Oh, that's what. It's not the dossier. It's no, no. the, it's, uh, it's the, the auction. It's the auction bro- brochure. Yeah, it says property. Well, yeah. property of a lady. Yeah. And of course, they have to fit that in because that's the name of the short story in the book. Well, and, sure, of course. Yeah. You know, hey, so here's a quick question for you. I don't have the answer. I'm asking you because I, okay. I know no Bond facts. <laughs> right? But is there like... So you know how like Star Trek... Maybe you don't. They, always say that the even numbered Star Trek movies are the good ones and the odd ones are the slightly less good ones, mm. right? Is there like a penchant for odd numbered double O's to die and even numbered double O's to stay alive? Or do they just, is there, has there ever been a double O that showed up that didn't die or was dead to begin with? They almost always die. Because other than, die. and I mean, even Sean, um, Sean Bean. Yeah, Sean Bean Gold lived, Nine. but ended up dying at the end. Yeah. But what number was he? Wasn't he 006? He was. So he was an even numbered. So he lived almost through the entire movie. Almost. I don't know. (laughs) It's something I've always wondered about. If there was like some little, hee hee hee, you know, we only, this guy's wearing a red shirt, so we're going to kill him kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just, I, I don't ever remember one living other than Sean Bean. I just think if you're not 007, you're going to die. <laughs> that, that seems pretty logical. And, you know, if you watch all the way to the end of the Daniel Craig movies, he dies too. He dies too. They all die. And he's an odd number. I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> So then, right after this property of a lady line, we cut to this state cabinet meeting in Russia. <sighs> now, I love I love this set. It's so... This is the most unrealistic it's, it's, Soviet Union set ever made not, in the entire history it, of movie it's sets. It's so campy. It's just... It's just like it's the Bond villain layer. It is the Bond villain layer of Russian cabinet meetings. No Russian would ever spend this exorbitant amount of money to have a giant curved table thing that rotates, that rotates on the floor to then reveal a giant screen <laughs> with a huge painting in the back of of Stalin. Is that Stalin? Uh, I don't even know my I, Russian. I, I, you know, I don't remember who was in the background. It's well. It's either Lenin or Stalin, Was right? he bald? He was. Then it was Lenin. So. Stalin had a very fine pompadour haircut. Ah, uh, so, so we've got this huge painting in the background of Lenin and, and the sickle and the 
pick or whatever, you know, all, all that shit. All of it. <laughs> And it's so grandiose, and no Russian would ever pay this much money. Everything would be practical. Everything well, would be purely for function. You would never have this much exactly flash. It. Now, uh, granted, <laughs> Russians might have paid for that. The Soviet Union absolutely would not have. Exactly, exactly. Uh, it would have been utilitarian and functional, very little ornamentation. That's a very good distinction between Russian and Soviet. The I don't Soviet know. Union would never pay no. for it. Russians might. Now, Russians would have made it out of wood. And That's it would have true. had intricate carvings and ornate decorations. <laughs> right. It would not have been marble slabs rotating towards marble TVs. <laughs> I saw this and I'm like, horseshit. I love it though. It's such a I know it's, it's so, such a gorgeous set. It is, and it's so bond. Yes. So incredibly bond. So that's when we uh we meet General Anatoly Gogol, and then we've got General Orlov. <laughs> By the way, outranks Gogol. According to the pauldrons on uh, the shoulder boards, oh, the epaulets really? on the shaft, uh, Gogol's got one star, Orlov has two. Interesting. Which, I, yeah, I'm like, huh. should have maybe been, but then, it should have been the other way around. Ex- yeah, except that Orlov is a general in name. Yeah. Because of what he does, right. per se. Yeah. I mean, if he's KGB, he's going to outrank everybody in there, regardless of what their military rank is, right? Right. But I noticed <laughs> that on the second viewing that he had one star and that Orlov had two. Huh. See, you always pick up on these details. These are the things I miss. Uh, well, you know, because you're enjoying the movie and I'm getting through it. <laughs> and then we've got another guy in there uh, that's part of the Soviet Security Council who looks uncannily like Michael G. Wilson. What? Yeah, I know. Who would have done? I can't believe it. They found a guy to look just like Michael G. Wilson? <laughs> who would have thought? <laughs> what are the odds? <laughs> I know. And we're kind of in the middle of this meeting and we hear Gogol wants to join NATO and Orlov is having none of it because Orlov is crazy. <laughs> well, there is that. <laughs> yeah. So we then get this thing from Orlov where he proposes to invade essentially the rest of Europe. And because he's saying, General Orlov. Uh, General Gogol is presumptuous. He speaks for himself and others who cling to timid, outdated, and unrealistic policies. Must I remind you, the committee, of our overwhelming superiority over NATO forces before we give it away? It's amazing. It's quite a performance. It really is. Like Victor Maitland, man, he is just doing it. You know a what job. happened was is that Serge gave him two espressos with a little lemon twist. <laughs> so he was pumped. He was pumped. So yeah, he wants to invade Europe, which is mad. And of course, Gogol says that he's mad. And Gogol says that NATO would counter with nuclear weapons, but Orlov doesn't think that they have the stomach to do it. And that's when the Soviet chairman kind of stands up and tells everybody to shut up and chill. Look at my eyebrows! <laughs> Look at my giant furry eyebrows! And he, he basically says that world socialism will be achieved peaceably. <laughs> Which is quite the quite the statement. <laughs> Honestly, this sounds like a bunch of non-Soviet Union 
communist communist wrote what a Soviet <laughs> Union communist would right, say. Exactly. And that they will only use military for defense. That's when Orlov sits down like the... And petul- pouts! And pouts like a petulant child. Just, Arms folded. Uh, yeah, just, He's like sh- scrunched in his seat. Oh, I'm mad. Don't get my way. I don't get to invade Europe. Man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking my toys home. That's right. So then uh, I think Gogol begins to speak again and this woman comes in and gives Orlov a message and he's like, tell him I will be there as quickly as possible. And then he gets this little evil <laughs> laugh. Right there, your Russian accent was better than anything he did in the movie. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> then we uh, we cut, and this is an interesting little locator thing that they do here. We get the placard that says it's the Kremlin Art Repository, and there's a literal graphic that is placed directly over the physical placard in the shot that says exactly the same thing. <laughs> Maybe they were just like, they're watching it, you know, right before they're about to release it and go, you know, that's not legible. They're not going to know. <laughs> we really should just put a graphic up right over it. That's hilarious. So, <laughs> so they go in, or Orloff goes in, I should say, and he's there to meet with this guy named Lincoln, who is very irritated because Grishka, knife guy number one, is playing with all his art counterfeits. And uh, Lincoln tells Orloff about the stolen counterfeit egg. He's very upset about all that, too. So Orloff is, is actually pretty cool and calm about this whole situation. He's just like, he's like, yeah, we'll get back the original and you can make a new reproduction it's not a big deal and that's how this whole auction thing that we're about to see why it even happens so that's when we cut to Sotheby's auction where Bond and Fanning are and are there to try and identify the owner of the egg Fanning then goes to tell Bond he estimates that a buy of 250,000 to 300,000 pounds would be plenty and any more would be crazy here's the thing though even in 1983 dollars for a Fabergé egg, that seems low. You think so? I could have, could have. I didn't do any research, but I could have swore I remember something coming up ten years or so ago mm-hmm. where one went for like fifteen million dollars because they're so rare. Yeah. So I felt like a so million be, dollars. It would have been, been more like a million or yeah. No, I mean I don't know that. I'm not an art dealer. I don't play one on TV. <laughs> but the fact that it even went for half a million just seemed like it's rare. Yeah, hard to say. Maybe the writers did their research and they knew better than I did in 1983. I find it funny that there's that purposeful line in there that says, yeah. well, anything more would be crazy. crazy. Right. Which That's means... That's never going to happen. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's code for, it's definitely going to happen. Mm-hmm. So then we hear the auctioneer and he's like, property of a lady. And Bond, <laughs> Bond can't help himself. He's like, well, there are f- quite a few ladies in here. He's oh, just... just God, can't, I know. He can't, he can't help himself. It's just... <laughs> Morris Bond is just constantly on the lookout for hot women. Well, like, he, like, well, this one doesn't well. drink nearly as much, so he's got to have gotta one do... of those vices that Bond's known for. Right, exactly. So he's just looking around for the ladies, and then we see Magda come in and make her way through the crowd. And of course, Bond immediately notices, and he's like, "Well, there is a lady." <laughs> he just can't. No, nope. he can't help himself through the whole nope. movie, man. Nope. Um, so she sits down next to uh, Kamala Khan, and within just a few bids, Khan makes his bid, and Fanning mentions he's usually a seller, and that he's a, uh, I forget where where he's from. He's a prince. 
Yeah, he's a prince from India. So, it, which you know, Louis Jordan, of course he is. Of course, this Frenchman with his tan. I mean, <laughs> if they really wanted to, they could have got George Hamilton. If a tan is the only thing that makes you from India. <laughs> Oh, boy. This is just the beginning of all the problems with the, <laughs> the subcontinent references out there. <laughs> yes, so. indeed. Um, the bidding escalates until Bond shocks Fanning while Fanning is looking away. Bond raises his hand, and then the camera pans over and sees him, and Fanning is just floored. What are you doing? <laughs> and, of course, Bond's all cool as a cucumber, and he's like, let's see how bad he wants it. So, so we get this moment after a couple bids, and it's just... This would never be allowed, ever, in an auction, where he's like, let me see the egg, please. Uh And he brings it over and he switches it under his... Like that whole move, when he brings it down and then underneath the program and then back out again... The only reason that it sells is because he then bids again on it. Right. If that were to happen in an auction now... Oh, I don't think he would have been able to touch a Fabergé egg. Yeah, he would never be able to touch it. He'd just be able to kind of lean in and glance at it. I'll be honest with you. I bet you in an auction or something like that now, you don't even get to see it off the pedestal. Yeah. They would have had a full detailed analysis. It would have been up by the- That is insured and guaranteed. So you're buying what you get, and if it turns out to not be after you buy it, you would get your money back. Right. So then, of course, Khan goes above him and Bond backs down. And Fanning is so mad. He's like, you had no right bidding on that. And But Bond, again, is like, I think he had to right. bid on this thing. And he's like, Fanning's like, why? And he's like, well, that's what I intend to find out. Yeah, exactly. So then we cut back to M's office and M's mad. Because that's what M does. Um, (laughs) At 007 specifically, but others in general. Yes. So he's mad about Bond bidding on the egg, but Bond says that if he would have got stuck with it, he would have claimed it was a fake. He then reveals that he made the switch at the auction and now has the real one. And just, this is the thing about Robert Brown's M. He's like full of wide eyes and eye rolls Uh and lots of comical... Oh no, what has 007 done this time right. type thing? Which in the Moore era kind of works. So. Yeah, I, Bernard Lee worked better with the asshole Connery Bond. Yes. Whereas the, the smarmy Moore Bond really needed more of a, a softer approach. Yes, indeed, indeed. Bond then sort of goes on to tell M that he doubts Khan will complain about the fake as he usually sells. And, and there's a moment too after the auction where Bond has somebody tail mm-hmm. Khan. Um, it turns out that he went straight away to the airport and, and went to Delhi. So that was his other reasoning for that he doesn't really care. He doesn't really care. He got so, what he came there for. Right. So, and this is another one of these Roger Moore and Robert Brown interactions here too, where M is telling Bond he has to go now to India and Bond has literally already bought a plane ticket to go. He's like, yes, I've only got 45 minutes to get to the to my plane or whatever. And as soon as he's out the door, we get this like smile from Robert Brown. Right. Like, but I do like oh, it, that 007. I do like he says, and make sure you sign a chit for that 007. It's British property now. Oh, yeah. That's a good little extra in there too. Which, of course, he then takes the egg with him. Right, <laughs> right. And doesn't bring it back. Yeah, ever. So then Bond arrives in India. And um, <laughs> this is when <laughs> the problems begin. All the- Let the problems begin. <laughs> yes. A lot of uh, things in India 
<laughs> There's a lot of word of mouth interpretations of India yes. and not a lot of deeply researched interpretations of India. Yeah, it, that's kind of what it feels like here. I don't think, now I will say this. Let me, let me start out by saying that it is never okay to participate in naive or ignorant racism. <laughs> and this is what they're clearly participating in. As but opposed to, I don't think it's malicious. It I definitely don't. is not. It's it's definitely it's not. It's shortcut. We need people to understand what's happening without a whole lot of extrapolation. Yes. It's, there's no nuance. Right. It's taken at its face value. You know, it's right. baguettes and, and, and berets in France. Right. Right. And it's, it's sausages and Volkswagens, which when we get to Germany, <laughs> we get plenty of those too. Yeah, indeed. I mean, there's they a lot of it the, going across the board. Yeah, they play up the stereotypes in every country they're in. It's just far more egregious here. Because there's a lot they have to cover while they're there. Right. And so you've got a lot of stereotypically poor people. You've got outfits that don't match the era. You've it's got, just, you've you've got, got snake charmers playing flutes. You've got snake flutes. charmers playing flutes in 1983. Sure. So, but again, 1983 films, man. It was a different time. It was a different time. So now we're in India. And um, <laughs> although Vijay is playing a snake charmer in this very scene, and Bond is walking up, and then, of course, Vijay plays the Bond theme. Yeah. On <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Coming up on the heels of the Close Encounters <laughs> communication tones from Moonraker, right. <laughs> we have, for your enjoyment, the Bond theme on a Snake Charmer's flute. <laughs> so they do the little spy phrase exchange. Can I give you gold or only sovereign or whatever? Yeah. I, don't, I don't even know what they say. Um, so anyway, then they get into the uh, exposition tuk-tuk, and that's when we first meet uh, VJ and Sedrudin. And we get this goofy exchange, really, about how VJ has a part-time job as a pro at Kamal's club. Imagine that. Huh. <laughs> who would have who would have thought that I mean, this guy <laughs> was really good at tennis? I mean, was it the fact that he had a tennis racket with him seemingly at all times? All the time. Wore a blue sport coat that looked very similar to something you'd win after winning a tennis championship or something. So anyway, Bond, of course, was like... Well, what have you learned so far? Well, my backhand's improved. <laughs> Which is a great joke. <laughs> it's a good I got I to tell you, there aren't a lot of great jokes in this movie, but that was one of the best jokes that was in there. And it's so downplayed yeah. because Roger Moore didn't say it. <laughs> right. Because VJ actually tries to act. <laughs> He's not trying to play it for the joke. He's just right. saying it like... Yeah. Well, matter, I've improved my backhand. <laughs> so Vijay shows him Kamal's palace up on top of the mountain. And he tells Bond that Khan plays at the hotel casino at night. So then there's this fucking line at the end of, of this scene. Bond hands back the flute and he says, here, you'll need this to play with your asp. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> What's great about this line, too, is then it immediately cuts to the shot of a woman's ass walking past in the during in the pool area. <laughs> don't say they don't know how to edit this movie. Yeah, they knew what they were doing. So so then we we get the classic Bond check-in scene. The only variance to it is the fact that the check-in counter is outside by the pool, and Bond walks past the pool. And uh, this is very... Uh, they stopped doing this after The Living Daylights. I don't think I've seen it ever after The Living Daylights. Is There's always this obligatory shot in every Bond movie where Bond walks past 
I don't know what you want, a harem of women almost. Mm-hmm. Or it's not, it doesn't even have to be Bond walking past them. There's always this wide shot of a, of a harem of beautiful women. Absolutely. And in this one, we get tons of these shots. Yeah. But this there's is the, only women at the swimming pool at the hotel. Right. There's only women at the. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, is this where all of Octopussy's girls went to go swimming? But Which doesn't make any sense they because had a pool they, there. they had their own pool. But apparently, there's just gaggles of girls all across India, all of them white. I might, yeah, I might have, yeah, for yeah. the most part. Yeah, there there were some there were some brown people. All right, in, well, in this particular scene, but yeah, <laughs> it just, it's, 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 is it a James Bond movie without girls in bikinis? Yeah. So anyway, so he goes up to the room and um, he has been informed that his clothes have already been unpacked for him, which is like service I have never heard of before in a hotel, but it's pretty neat. <laughs> and then, of course, the the girl, if you need anything, anything at all. And then, of course, <laughs> literally every interaction between Bond and a woman is a come on in this right. movie. Just like Vito Kill. Vito yeah. Kill's the same way. Oh, yeah. Like, he's constantly just trying to get in bed with literally every female character that he talks to in this movie. <laughs> so he's like, maybe later? No. <laughs> and then she just smiles because she's paid to and then walks away. Exactly. <laughs> so I do like that there's a little moment where he actually checks for a bug on the underside of the phone, kind of hearkening back to Connery era. So then Bond walks out to his balcony and he sees Magda... Uh, walk onto this boat full of girls. And we don't know who these girls are yet, but they're all fancifully dressed. We see the flag on the boat of a octopus E. <laughs> At this point, we only think it to be an octopus. Yes, yes. With one S. One S. No Y. So then we cut to uh, nighttime. And Bond arrives at the casino in a white dinner jacket, of course. Of course. And there's a crowd around Khan's backgammon table where he is just cleaning the floor with this major. Who doesn't realize that he's playing with loaded dice. They literally say he keeps rolling the same thing all the time. Yeah, it's like, how do you not figure this out? Well, you can tell, though. Now, I will say, if you're watching closely, you can see he does switch out the dice intermittently. I don't care. If somebody keeps rolling, <laughs> I don't double, care. I don't care. Th- thank you, Tommy Lee Jones. Um, if he keeps rolling the same improbable roll, yeah, something's not. It's like me pulling out four aces on every hand that I'm playing right. poker. <laughs> He's like, it's all in the wrist. I'm sure it is, Louis Jordan. <laughs> so Bond notices Khan's little cheat move, and then he follows Magda to the bar. We get that whole silly line. She says, you must have a knack for faces. And he goes, and figures. <laughs> and she's just like, oh, God. Okay. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> And then we're quickly back to Khan's game. And I do love this next part where Khan wants to go double with the major, but the major backs down and he's like, not, not with, with your improbable luck. Yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine why. It seems like it's a trap. (laughs) So Bond then takes his place and Khan, of course, rolls double sixes. So at this point, Bond is like challenges to go double. And Khan's like, well, if you have the cash or something like. Yeah, you could avoid it more or less, right? Yeah. And that's when Bond pulls out the real Fabergé egg. And he's like, well, I think this should be enough insurance. Don't you? (laughs) 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 So. I do like how in every James Bond scene where he does something like this, that it's only because we're writing it through a civilized world interpretation of things that he could pull that out and not immediately get beheaded by the bodyguard. Right. And just takes the egg and like, well, 
There's another dead British guy, right? <laughs> right, right. You know, every one of these things is just like, if I was really a notorious bad guy, yeah. and you just handed me my thing, I'd have been like, kill him. You're yeah. done. Well, I mean, isn't that his casino? Yeah. So, so- <laughs> he's obviously somebody of great importance where he's right. at. I feel like he could get away with killing one British dude. Yeah. Listen, in a movie that has like five endings, this could have been the seventh or eighth. Right. And would have kept it on time at least. <laughs> right. So Khan starts talking about, well, you're going to need a great deal of luck. And then this is the great move where Bond is like, well, then I shall play player's privilege and use your lucky dice. Yeah. And the best part about it, though, is when he rolls it, doesn't look down, looks him straight yeah, in the it's eye. Like and double sixes. Double sixes. It's all in the wrist. That was a nice little bit on Roger's part. Yeah. Without looking at the dice, just like, I know you're a fraud. <laughs> exactly. So Khan asks for his checkbook, which is so 1983. Right. <laughs> and it's one of those gigantic register checkbooks. Right, right. It's a huge, like, corporate, write your paycheck paycheck. Exactly. Or write your paycheck check. And then we get the great line from Bond to, I do prefer cash. <laughs> so he has a cash or whatever. And then we get an actual line from a Fleming book where he says, Spend the money quickly, Mr. Bond. I intend to. Come on, Khan. Which is actually out of the book Moonraker, by the way. And then we get that shot of Gobinda. With the, the just the smoldering eyes. <laughs> the smoldering eyes. <sighs> and the lucky dice as he's cr- looking menacing and then he crushes them. Like, no shit. I would be terrified of this guy if he was mad at me. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if he could. I mean, if Richard Keel comes at me with those metal teeth, I'm like, you're slow. I can get around <laughs> I you. I can run away right? from you. <laughs> you know, odd job with the hat. I'm like, you're a good shot. But if I'm hiding, you would have trouble finding me. Right. I mean, virtually any bad guy. I'm not really that worried about henchmen wise. Right. But maybe, maybe Hinks from Spectre. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind He's of a kind similar. Of, yeah. Well, yeah. Dave Batista is just smoldering giant, right? Yeah. You know, so, same, so. Same sort of thing. No trick, no nothing. Just I'm big and I will kill you. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, yeah. I, although Dave Batista, I, I will always think of him as, as Drax the Destroyer. And I can never be intimidated by that because the character's so goofy. But Right. <laughs> so then uh, Kamal Khan and Gobinda and Magda, they all walk off and VJ arrives. I like the, the shoulder hit uh-huh. from uh, Gobinda as VJ passes by. Oh, and the cashier's assistant comes in with the actual cash for him. Yeah, hold this for me. <laughs> yeah, he's, <laughs> he's like handing out the cash. And then we get probably uh, probably the most problematic line in the entire movie. Where he hands some money to um, Sedrudin. And he's like, well, that'll keep you in Curry for a few weeks. Mm -hmm. Ouch. Mm -hmm. Maybe not the best line. I mean, it's like, not the best line, but it certainly isn't the worst thing that's going to happen in this movie in correct, India. Correct. So, but it, correct. it's teeing you up. You know, you could take it on a more naive level and be like, oh, well, that'll keep you well fed for a couple of weeks. You know, you can go out to dinner or whatever. But, but also, when you think about keeping you well fed in India, it also plays on stereotypes. There's yes. no way to get out of this one. There's it's no a way. bad line that didn't need to be in there, but listen, there it's was. A, listen, it's a, it's a favorite childhood movie of mine. I'm just trying to apologize for and, and, it. And, you know, <laughs> it was a different time. It was a different time. Different 1983. Time. 1983. So then VJ and Bond, they take off in a tuk-tuk, and Gobinda follows behind with this blunderbuss shotgun, which is interesting. And we get this line from VJ, don't worry, James, this is a company car. And they like, like start doing like a wheelie or whatever in the tuk-tuk. 
Nope. And holy cow, I love, and I know it's corny and campy, but I love all the tennis gags in here where VJ is hitting the, the guys with the tennis racket and you see all the, the people on the side of the road like <sighs> oh, oh I know oh my <laughs> turning, god turning their heads like they're watching a tennis so match. bad <laughs> so plenteous plenteousest of glens and then the guy jumps on the back and he stabs Bond with this five bladed thing thank god for hard currency <laughs> and then we're off so <laughs> See the tuk tuk jump the camel. <laughs> yeah, I mean again, again, full generally General- Duke boys. Yeah, <laughs> we're going over that camel, boys. <laughs> <laughs> How are they gonna get out of this pickle? <laughs> How are Bond and VJ gonna get out of this pickle while the bad guys are following? Us? That's right. So then uh, Bond jumps off the tuk tuk. Uh, just before Gobinda blasts the seat. And uh, he then starts making his way through the marketplace or whatever. And this is when we get another litany of stereotypes. First, he gets like a lay type thing on him. Mm -hmm. And he has to fight this guy right next to this this man who's sitting on a bed of nails. Right, right. There's another stereotype. Which, by the way, when the bad guy gets thrown on the bed of nails, they all bend. Because they're rubber. <laughs> but I do love the guy who owns the bed of nails. He's like, get off my bed. Yes. <laughs> so, then, uh, so then Bond pulls the sword out, out of, of the sword swallower. Out of the sword swallower's mouth, which, again, more stereotypes yeah. or whatever. So he fights this other guy who then falls on this trail of hot coals. <laughs> so we're just, we're literally going from one stereotype to the next, to the yep. next, to the next. And he runs away and then Gobinda sees Bond and Bond dumps this hot oil that just happens to be nearby. Somebody's onto the coals. Onto so the coals. And fire goes everywhere and then Bond runs off and he gets reunited with VJ and the Tuk Tuk. And as Gobinda gains on them, one more stereotype of throwing money to poor people. <laughs> Throws the money. Rupee! Somebody <laughs> yeah. threw a bunch of hundreds out there like that. Everybody right. would run towards it too. Right. I think that's pretty universal. True. So, which may be... Yanks back a little, how, dials it back dials a little bit, back a little bit as but far as at how the, bad as it is. the as the coup de gras, as it were. <laughs> Chris, did I say that right? Coup de gras, as the coup de gras of what was an incredibly stereotypical segment. Yes, you can't really ignore the the subtext that was there. right. So we get a little throwaway line from from Bond. Easy come, easy go. Can I just tell you that I did the conversion on how much money he actually won in American dollars to oh, rupees really? back in 83? Okay. It's worth about $12,000. 250,000 rupee or whatever he was. It was only 12,000. 12 grand. So in case anybody was wondering how he was so blasé with tossing out money, it wasn't that much money. It really wasn't that much money. It was not even worth probably the wristwatch he was wearing. It was worth more as a knife shield. Yes. Than anything else. <laughs> Indeed. So then they drive through what looks initially like a wall with a poster on it. Dun, 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 <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Serious indie vibes here. And then the second poster comes down to replace it, creating the illusion. Dun, 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 dun. It's very Raiders of the Lost there, Ark. There's a lot of indie stuff that's coming forward here pretty soon. Oh, the indie vibes in this movie are strong. Because I'm uh, well, I mean, it's only two years off, right? Didn't, didn't Raiders Temple, come out in '81? Yeah, and then Temple of Doom in '84. So I'm like, so they're right. That, I'm just saying, knowing that they might have taken for that, but there's stuff coming up 
that feels like Temple of Doom swiped it from this movie. Oh, really? And knowing how big a Bond fan that Spielberg, Spielberg is. is. Yeah. Now, granted, they started making Temple of Doom in 82, 83, I think. It's probably a bit of cross-pollination, just in general. I mean, you've it feels like Bond is slightly stealing from Raiders. But, the, but then but then Temple of Doom is stealing from Octopussy. Yeah, the entire <laughs> scene in Kamal Khan's house with the dinner and everything. Yes. Oh, yeah. So I'm like, chicken or egg here. Yeah. Because the time frame is so close to each other. Right. But we could talk about that when we get to it a little more in depth. Yeah. So then we're into Q's lab, uh, station... One uh, of his many labs, 007. Station I, and he's very... Oh, he's so irritated, which he always is, but he's very irritated that he has to set up shop. I can't believe you've roped me into this again, 007. See what I did there? Roped. <laughs> roped him in. Anyway. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> so they go past the giant rope thing that that does what it does, and of course he asks... To, to fix his coat. Do you have a bit of thread to fix my coat? Dumb joke. And then hands, it off, to, joke. hands it off to a Karen. <sighs> Karen, can you take care of this with 007? <laughs> yeah. They missed you. What a pity. What That's a, a pity. Great line from Q. And I have to say, before we get too far into this, and I don't remember, Smithers, and I feel like there's always a Smithers, <laughs> but the, the background guy Smithers, uh-huh. um, and I forget what gag he was working on against the wall, but that actor is Jeremy Bullock, who played the original Boba Fett in Empire what? and in Jedi. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, he, he. I don't think he even has a line, but Bond goes, "Oh, hello, Smithers," <laughs> and I'm like, "Smithers, oh, okay." And I, I not is that he I, the one with the smashing door? Yes, that's that. Yeah, he, he's okay. the door gag. He's the door gag. I couldn't remember what the gag was on it. Yeah, but yeah, and the only reason I knew that was because I had to pause it because I was talking to uh, my daughter about something, and I, it came up on the Amazon credits. Right, Jeremy Bullock, Smithers. I'm like. That is the most fearsome bounty hunting uh, Q branch guy in the world. Exactly. But yeah, so <laughs> we see Smithers apparently. And then uh, we get the uh, the rope climby thing, which then bends and is like, trouble keeping it up, Q? It's just like, they, they just set him up to knock him down, Absolutely. Man. <laughs> so, but that's like a typical interaction between the two of them. It's all just smarmy back right. and forth repartee and then... Now pay attention, Double Seven. <laughs> Here's the thing you actually okay. need to pay now attention. Now we're done having a little thing. Pay attention <laughs> while I show you how things work now. <laughs> right. So we see the uh, the homing device with the mic built in that goes into the the carriage inside the Fabergé egg, and then Q explains that the fountain pen has nitric acid, and that the uh, the homing device then corresponds with the watch, so he can then track. I don't know how that that looks so like. 1983 fake sciencey stuff. Whether it <laughs> yeah, the, the, it's a homey beacon that transfers to the watch, but right. it's also a microphone that has its own little earpiece that looks a lot like a suppository and not an earpiece <laughs> at all, like the six million dollar man suppository, all bionic looking and stuff. And let me ask you: Is this the first time Bond wore a digital watch? It may have been. I don't remember have... if he did in Moonraker or not. Yeah, I don't recall. Because I thought that Roger that was kind of a big deal because Roger was really the Seiko era mm-hmm. of watches. Yes. I think this was this might have been. Um, I'm sure. Listen, if one of our tens of listeners is one of those Bond watch guys, like let us know. I'd, I'd I'm curious. genuinely curious. Yeah. Like, for me, it was kind of a, oh, okay. 
Yeah. The digital watch? Yeah. I mean, that. granted, I know back in 83, digital watches were kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. But to me, they've always been a cheap alternative to buying a real watch. Well, I have the, funny enough, I have the cheap alternative to this very watch that we're talking about. Right. Because they made one that was like more affordable for dorks like me that want to collect things but can't pay for the actual sure. version and they call it the um casio royale oh my gosh <laughs> right <laughs> that's fantastic now did it come with a little homing transmitter to put in your personal faberge egg uh unfortunately it did not oh, did that's, not that's also faberge egg was not included which was a real disappointment was it well. not even like an upscalable option no unfortunately oh. not well yeah. it sounds to me like you got fleeced that's all i'm gonna say well it also sounds like I know what I'm going to make next and try and mark it. Hmm. Yes. I digress. Um, so then Q is explaining the fountain pen that has nitric acid, combination of nitric and hydrochloric acid on one end. And then the top of the pen, we get the the earpiece uh, that allows you to listen into the bug, the one that Jason uh, mentioned before that looks like a suppository. The $6 million man suppository. $6 million man suppository, excuse me. And then Bond discovers the liquid crystal TV <laughs> that, that then the the video from the liquid crystal TV corresponds to his watch. And then we get the boob. <laughs> zoom in, zoom out, zoom in, zoom out. Listen, does it? Make more sense now why I am the way I am, given that this is the first Bond movie I saw in the theater. I have always 100% fully understood why you are the way you are. So, yes, this is definitely a large influence on it. But even that one. Even that one's over the top. It's it's really corny. Also, look at the resolution on that liquid crystal display watch from 1983. Indeed. I also find it hilarious that the girl who's being focused on doesn't even flinch. Nope. Doesn't just like stays right in position, doesn't try and move or cover up or do anything. She's just like... That's what she got hired for. Okay, well, you know, I'm getting paid for this. I'm here to stand here and show off my décolletage. (laughs) Rents do. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, nobody... There wasn't a woman who signed on to a James Bond picture before... Night or 2005, right? <laughs> that didn't expect they were going to be exploited in some capacity, <laughs> probably. So, uh, and that kind of uh, leads us into Act Two. All right, so we cut to nighttime at the hotel because you can't have dinner when it's daytime. That's right. Uh, Bond is walking by the pool again, <laughs> um, and the Mater D with a very dashing mustache. I must, I might add, uh, stops him and tells him that his table is ready and that his guest is waiting for him. And of course, a guest. Uh, I don't have a guest. I don't have it. She's waiting over there. Well, 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 well. <laughs> She's attractive after all. Um, I suppose I go sit down. Oh, I suppose I'll go. It sit is down. a lady. It is exactly. <laughs> Hello, ladies. Uh, so. Naturally, Magda is there, basically, uh, you know, getting ready to set up an exchange, obviously, because James threw the egg out there and, right. and uh, you know, obviously knows Kamal Khan wants the egg. So she proposes that uh, they do an exchange, the egg for Bond's life. Yes. I'm like, man, that's not going to fly with James Bond. <laughs> well, I do like the line, too, where Bond's like, well, apparently the price of eggs has gone way up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and as they're standing there or sitting there talking, a girl randomly comes up to take a picture of Bond, you know, because, you know, the random flower girls have a photo right. with your lady kind of things. It's secretly, it's actually one of Octopussy's girls, but okay. <laughs> and that was so, it. 
took me so long to understand why that even happened. Even though it now makes sense to me from a plot perspective, it makes no sense as far as motivationally speaking why they would take that. Aside from the fact that, like you said, like it's just one of those people that come up and offer you offer to either buy a flower or to take your picture right, or right. whatever. Well, and I think Magda kind of goes and says that it's for, she, she'll keep it as a souvenir. And, right. and, and I mean, there could be some store backstory that we don't get that, that, you know, before people get killed by her. Right. She likes to take their picture because she's a serial killer. Who knows? <laughs> right. This is a bond. This is a bond girl in a bond movie. She could, you know, it, other ones maybe take fingers. I don't know. At least a picture is more humane. <laughs> I will say this. This is, uh, it's interesting that none of the Bond girls die in this movie. That's true. None of them do die, you know, accidentally because they get in front of Bond when they get shot or. Or because he all. just simply shagged them. Yeah, I killed you. Now you're going to die because it's the kiss of death, literally. Right. Literally, the kiss of death. But uh, yeah, Magda says basically it's for her scrapbook and for her memories, which, you know, is like. Did they have scrapbooking in 83? I know. It's very, very 2000s. Did you go to like early 2000s? Did you go to Michael's or Hobby Lobby? Get some special decals for that? Scrapbooking. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and and she she tells tells the photographer girl to charge it to his room. He's like, room 27. I suppose I'm paying for the champagne too as well. (laughs) Right. But, you know, he he ends this whole thing uh, with the before going off saying, well, why did we make some memories? Right. (laughs) You mentioned a scrapbook. Let's make some memories. (laughs) And sexy time. Yeah. You knew it was coming. Yeah. Yeah. And probably James Bond did too. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) Anyway. So we cut to Bond's room. uh, Clothes strewn about everywhere. And of course... They're in bed. <laughs> there are so many moments in this movie of Bond widening his eyes to something that is either being said or done. Like, <laughs> and this one, this one coming up stands out to me of, I need refilling. <laughs> and Bond's eyes open as goals you do. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. He's fully invested in this version of James Bond at this point. <laughs> right. Um, so as they're laying about, he notices that she's got the small octopus tattoo on her back. And he asks her about her. And she it's looks at him, it's my little octopusy. <laughs> Another <laughs> I mean, straight face. Yeah, like not even like that's what you call it. That's what you call it. It's my little octopus. It's my little octopusy. <laughs> and it, it, I almost feel like there was another line there going, oh, well, I thought I'd uh, seen that already. But no, we didn't get anything like that. And that was a perfect tee-up, and nothing happened with that thing. After another one of his silly, wide-eyed looks from an obviously deadpan delivery, <laughs> they go at it again. They do. I mean, maybe Octopussy is James Bond has sex with the same girl eight times? <laughs> I don't know. That whole loving cup thing, too. Yeah. That was a weird little addition in there. I was like, what What does this have What does this have to do with anything? Just, I, I think it just goes along with the whole refilling joke. Yeah. I feel like at some times here, the writers didn't really know where they were going. <laughs> so yeah. they were just sort of like, well, this would be a proper thing for Bond to do here. Yeah. And we're just going to write something so that it fits. And, and I will say, too, I mean, and this sort of goes right along with the open. Opening titles actually. This whole movie is just 
Sexy time. Right? This is sexy time Bond, man. It's like they just took the restraints off. They really did. I mean, this is as close as we get to like the level that Honor Majesty's Secret Service was at when when Lazenby's in the, you know, at P's Gloria with like 12 different women and he's just making the rounds. Like. Right. <laughs> well, and you know, I'm actually a little surprised given the time frame that we didn't even get any nudity in this at all. Yeah. Shockingly enough. You know, and I, I mean, it's not like nudity's a big staple in Bond films anyway. Yeah. But given the time frame it was in and with the angle they were going on this thing. For sure. Yeah. So who knows? Yeah. Who knows? But <laughs> we didn't see Kamal Khan and Gabinda rolling up outside the, the window below. Gabinda gets out first because he's a tough guy. That's right. Um, then the car moves on to go right under Bond's window. Magda at this point is now finished getting dressed. In, in her, what is that called? Like a sir? A sorry? A sorry? Or, yeah. Okay. Really, really, we will find it a really, really, really long one. <laughs> yes. At this point. But grabs the egg, and I'm not really sure. I guess they put it in front of a mirror so that you would know that Bond was letting her take the egg. Yeah, like you knew that Bond was, was anticipating her stealing the egg. Right, and yet she does it so poorly yeah. <laughs> that she should have anticipated that he knew that she was taking the egg. Right. It was so bad. Yeah. With a little behind the back, over the side, around the thing. Hey, look, what's that over there? <laughs> right, even though there's a mirror, it's like, well, right. yeah, I can see it. You're hiding it behind your back. It's right there. It's literally right there. <laughs> and then I think at some point in time before she bails off the balcony, she slides it into her bodice. Yeah. Like, because you wouldn't see that. Right. That wouldn't look like some like a gross tum- like tumor. A tumor or something. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, so I mean, she, she goes over to the balcony and she's leaning against the balcony and there's the whole James lovey, lovey, dovey thing. By the way, she didn't throw out, oh, James at all Not, in there. Well, she didn't, but no, Octopussy. No. That was no. safe for Octopussy. Oh, I know, but I'm just saying. <laughs> and then she just tips over that side of the balcony and Cirque du Soleil twirls all the way down. It's pretty great. And it is pretty great. And I like it so much more now knowing that she did it. Right. Like, that's super cool. Well, I mean, do we know, was she like a a circus performer or something like that? I I don't know. Maybe had some of these, because she did a lot of her own stunts and a lot of, she seemed to have kind of like, I don't want to say she had like a circus performer mentality but right. like in the scenes later on in germany when she's in the top hat and the thing she was right. very she's presentational literally the, yeah and she's the magician and she's right. you know hosting and so it makes me wonder what her story was yeah we might have to uh if only i'd done some research before i came into this recording <laughs> well, i could have these questions well, answered as our tens of listeners know this is not a scholarly podcast There's nothing even remotely <laughs> scholarly in fact we should just ban the word here other than the fact that when we say it it makes us laugh so we're not going to do that <laughs> that's right but anyway so she all the way down where she's now more or less in a bikini. Yes. And right there being very much a gentleman, uh, Kamal Khan has a little wrap to put on and puts it into the car. Goodbye, Mr. Bond. You know, although (laughs) he doesn't say that, but he probably did in the car. Yes. Um, But she gets in the car, hands off the egg to Khan and they drive off. As Bond (laughs) walks back into his room, he's immediately crunch up. (laughs) <laughs> the second Binda, second chop right there we're done so we cut to octopussy's palace and i could say that all day octopussy 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 it's saying it twice that makes it so funny yeah and it's so much and there's extra emphasis on it at the second one <laughs> 
So we cut to Octopussy's palace. It's now daytime. And we see the Octopussy boat, which we know because there's a floaty flag with a big version of Magda's little octopussy (laughs) flowing in the wind. Uh, The boat is being rowed by the Octopussy ladies with Kamal Khan standing in the middle looking all like he's in charge which we're going to pretty much find out he's not here in a minute. Yeah. Uh, holding his little Fabergé egg, not a metaphor. Um, <laughs> and, you know, they're all, the, the octopusy people's outfits. You know, they're either harem outfits or they're like... Incredibles outfits. Either incredible. I was going to say greatest American hero, actually. <laughs> also was fitting. Uh, my wife was like, are those Incredibles over there? <laughs> I'm like, what's incredible is none of them are wearing underwear under there. (laughs) Check out the tall blonde we're going to see in a few minutes when you're watching the movie. There's, yeah. Anyway. We're in India. There are a lot of camels. Let's just leave it at that. (laughs) But I digress. Yeah. So they're all just rowing the boat, right? We're rowing the boat. That's what we do. Gosh. (laughs) They arrive at the palace. Khan is escorted through the palace grounds to Octopussy's room. I do love... When they're leading him to Octopussy, the, just the crusty look that the girls keep giving him as he's making his way, they all, none of them like. No, none of them like him at all. <laughs> right. And I mean, I immediately, when I see this whole scene, all I'm like is, Wonder Woman, <laughs> we're a bunch of ladies on an island, and there aren't any men. <laughs> And then at the end, I really started getting that whole Amazon vibe. Oh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's clear. They don't like dudes on the island. No. They tend, you know what? They're they're pretty nice to Bond, though. They were cordial to Bond. Okay, they were cordial because because Octopus clearly likes him. Correct. But I mean, there was th- that blonde that lets him in later on. She was just like, who's this dude? <laughs> and then the dude she really hates comes. She's like, all right, I guess I'm cool with it. <laughs> Because she, because right. of Bontine behind the door, she totally like, oh, 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 all right, right, all right, all right. <laughs> deal with this other scumbag first. But anyway, <laughs> that's later. Yes. So we don't see Octopussy's face in this entire scene, which I think works really well. It does because you're still trying to build up that suspense of who this person is, and and it kind of makes her seem more powerful. It's kind of the same thing that what they did with. That's what they uh, do with all the Blofelds. With Blofeld. You yeah. never really see his face. It's just him petting the kitty. Right, exactly. And of course, we're already referencing the octopusy here. <laughs> so there's no need to actually give it a visual. Although there is an octopusy in a tank. There is. No one was petting that octopus. There's no lasers on there the are octopus. There are no lasers. In, there are no lasers on the octopusy in the tank. But there might have been one on the plane in Cuba. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> we'll cut all this. <laughs> God, I hope not. So Kamal Khan is a tad confused as to why she's not happy that he's recovered the egg. But as she points out, you know, you fucking lost it. Yeah. So why should I make you feel better about getting something back that you shouldn't have lost in the first place? Right. And then she starts talking about the thief and Khan tries to reassure that he's going to get all the information out of him. But in the process, mentions that his name is James Bond and there's a look of recognition. Yes, we get this shot of the hand, Octopussy's hand as she's feeding her octopus But Where it stops. Yeah, it stops. It pauses Mid-motion. At the name, right. Yeah. So... Like, oh, Octopussy's got some history with Bond, James Bond, <laughs> I guess. She tells Kamal Khan that she wants him to bring Bond to her. He warns her that she's dangerous. Doesn't he even go to, but Octopussy, but Octopussy. <laughs> he warns her that he's dangerous and that they should kill him immediately after getting the information. 
But she's like, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> yeah, a little finger wag. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> no. And he's clearly irritated, but there's nothing that he can do about it because yeah. she's clearly in charge of this whole operation. Yeah, she's clearly way more powerful than... And I'm like, maybe that's why they got Louis Jordan because, you know, it seems like he would be offended in general that a woman was in charge of anything. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> Enough about that. So we cut to a shot of a car going up Switchback Road leading to Kamal Khan's palace. And then we see a close-up of Bond waking up from being knocked out with a Gino Joe. <laughs> and he is now apparently a guest at Kamal Khan's where all of his clothes have been folded and hung up where they needed to be. It must be an Indian tradition. Apparently so. I mean, it's, I, it's just what you do. I guess so, but... When in New Delhi. When in New Delhi, do as they do. Uh, he looks up at his watch and... Looking at the little red bleeper dot on his digital display, <laughs> sees that the egg is moving. Because it's accurate that much. I it's mean, you know. Dead on. <laughs> it knows exactly where everything is. 1983 technology. GPS was. technology was not in its infancy at this point and only being used for the military. <laughs> so clearly. Clearly. Clearly the technology is there. Bond starts going through, you know, trying to figure out a way to get out. Right. Goes to one door, the door is locked. Goes to the other door, the door is locked. Both of these doors look exactly like the doors that Boba Fett was testing out <laughs> early. And I'm like, are one of these doors going to snap and hit him in the head? I'm noticing that. When he realizes he can't go out, he goes to what's obviously a closet and sees all of his clothes all hung up and neatly yes. done. Um, and as he walks over again, the door opens up. Gobinda stands there, smoldering. Smoldering Gobinda. Yeah, and he just tells him, he's like, Dinner is at eight. One of these days, I'm going to count how many dinners Bond has had against his will with the main villain. Because it's not every movie. No. I don't think he shares an actual meal with Goldfinger. He just has that drink. Yeah. He just has the mint julep. I mean, you would clearly know better than me. I mean, Dr. No, obviously, is the big one. I can't remember off the top of my head how many times he's... Dined with Darth Vader. <laughs> I mean, he, we would be honored. <laughs> we would be honored if you would join us. <laughs> hey, and Smithers is in that scene too. Yeah. <laughs> hey, what do you know? Anyway, so Bond comes walking in, yeah. dressed in his black tuxedo. Yeah. As we hear the Westminster chimes ringing precisely at eight o'clock. Yes, of course. Of course. <laughs> Sits down at the table. There's some little witty banter between the two of them. Yes. Yeah, the whole discussing techniques for how Khan is going to get the truth out of right. out of Bond. So, what do you think? Thumbscrews and... <laughs> well, because Bond's putting it out there like, oh, you're going to torture me, of course. And right. then Louis is like, oh, no, we're going to do something much more. Yeah, we're so sophisticated yes, here. Yes, we're going to use all of these things that can make yes. you brain damaged. Right. This is where we start getting the, the Temple of Doom references, yes. of which I, I mentioned earlier. Because it comes, And I'm watching this whole scene. Even the way the, sh the shot is set up, yeah. Seems like it's, granted, in Temple of Doom, that dinner table is much longer. Right. But it's still coming from over the shoulder of yeah. where it's at. And they bring out the things with the cloches and they open it. And I half expected chilled monkey braids. <laughs> ah, dessert. Yeah. Snake surprise. <laughs> right. And what do we get? Boiled sheep's head with eyeballs. Right. Right. So it's the whole thing. It's this shock value food thing. Right. Right. That's probably supposed to put Bond at ill at ease. Now, funny enough, there is a Bond fan out there that meticulously tries to recreate every meal that has ever been in a Bond movie. Okay. And he found it ridiculously impossible to actually create a stuffed sheep's head if you retain 
like the brain and some of the inside things, there's literally no place to put stuffing. Right. Like, <laughs> why is this a surprise to anybody? It shouldn't be a surprise. Just looking at it, geometrically speaking. <laughs> you can get some stuff in the nose and the mouth. That's really all you're going to get. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it was definitely disgusting. <laughs> and then, you know, Bond throws out some line about not liking the eating food that's still looking at him or something right. like well, that. Well, and then you get the shot of Gobinda looking at him. Right. As he's about to try and eat this right. disgusting thing. And then Kamal Khan pulls out the eyeball. Mmm, <laughs> yum. Mmm, <laughs> tasty. <laughs> yummy, yummy. Which was made of marzipan, actually. Yeah. Marzipan! But, uh, you know, Bond... <laughs> Bond is not having any of it. Uh, why would he? I mean, <laughs> I certainly wouldn't want to. But dinner's over. Bond is on his way back up to the room. And as he does, and the second thing that feels like it came out of Temple of Doom, offers to go back into Magda's room, who's also been there at the dinner. Would you like a nightcap? Would you like a nightcap? And I'm just, you know, like Indy with the fruit tray with Willie. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. And then... And then <laughs> going into his room and then asks Gobinda... I don't suppose you'd, you'd like, like a nightcap. <laughs> I am such a fan. I don't know why I'm obsessed with Bond asking people for a, if they'd like a nightcap. It's just, for some reason, it's, I just find it so charming when he does it. At least during the late Roger era. Yeah. He's constantly talking about nightcaps. Well, I feel like, again, he doesn't do a lot of drinking on screen. Yeah. So I feel like they have to verbally remind you that he's a alcoholic as well as a womanizer <laughs> right you know because and i wonder was that like a roger moore thing that he just like i'm not portraying him as a as a drinker it's not who i am as a person all i know about roger moore as a person is just that he's a pacifist or, mm -hmm. or was a pacifist and so i know he wasn't real which would kind of explain too why a lot of the fight scenes there's a lot of stunt men doing mm -hmm. what he's doing but as far as the drinking thing i mean he he certainly drank off screen you know, whatever right, else so he drank. So he wasn't a teetotaler or anything like that. I just, yeah. it's definitely, for me, it's a marked departure from Connery's Bond. And it certainly pales in comparison to the Craig era, because man. Oh my gosh. Daniel Craig just. He was totally functioning alcoholic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that plane ride in Quantum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. He would uh, be dead. Anyway. He, absolutely. Moving on. <laughs> hey, moving on. So, and you know, it was funny. As, as Magda seemed almost clearly disappointed that he couldn't go in there. Right. Because. When, and then she, you know, because he has a reaction shot when he goes into the room over there. So the whole thing just really felt very indie vibey to me. Very much so. You know, yeah. I almost expected him to like pop in there and find a secret thing where he <laughs> grabs the boobs on the statue. <laughs> that would be very in character. <laughs> but rather, instead of that, we cut to, uh, first of all, James has changed out of his evening clothes and put yes. on his action adventure clothes. That's right. And I don't know, if I'm unpacking Bond's things and I see action adventure clothes, I'm not hanging those up. <laughs> I'm not. I'm like, if you're going to climb walls, you're doing it in your tux, buddy. No action-adventure clothes for you, sir. No, none at all. No. Uh, but we see him using the acid pen to eat away the bars, which I have some questions about this. Yeah. Or, or at least the speed at which it would work. Uh, not even the speed at which it would work, as much as... Or how does one contain... That, no, that no. My my concern is is that he's doing it at the base of the bars, mm -hmm. and then he's bending the bars out of the way. <laughs> he literally does that with the last bar, right? I'm like bionic suppository, bionic suppository. <laughs> if you can bend the bars in the first, why do you place? need the acid? Exactly. This is what I'm saying. If 
He'd melted the bar at the bottom and then the top and removed the bar. Right. That makes sense to me. Right. But melting it at the bottom and bending it Bionic Man style, why do you need the acid? I, I know. But Bond apparently needed the acid. Yeah. Um, either way, he gets out. Yep. Right? And I uh, you know he's making his way along the uh, tactfully placed ledge. Uh, <laughs> just just a quick note for any uh, evil villains out there. Yes. Evil villains in training. Mm. Don't put your, uh, your nemesis uh, spy secret agent guy in a room with ledge access. Yes, because he will use that to get out. Particularly and get away. if when you've hung up all of his clothes, he has an action adventure suit in there. <laughs> it's a dead giveaway. He's going to be climbing on that ledge. Indeed. So as he's walking, we get the classic John Glenn jump scare with the damn birds. <laughs> and then the two security guards. Oh, birds. <laughs> Probably nothing. I mean, it's not like our boss would have been stupid enough to put the guy we got captured in a room where he has access to the only ledge on the building. But James, uh, unfazed by the birds, keeps moving along, gets over to Magna's room where she's undressing and maybe takes a little piece. We get an eyebrow raise. We get a little eyebrow raise. I will say, in this whole area i really like the i like how they combine the the shots where clearly he's on a ledge in a set right like at pinewood combined with some actual outside shots yep. like when the helicopter arrives and that sort of thing the lighting is they've matched that lighting yeah they did really bang, well like bang on not not like we get with the train scenes later Oh, boy. Well, that was so bad. Okay. But uh, anyway, <laughs> so the helicopter lit with Orloff lands. And for all you uh, uh, helicopter people out there. Enthusiasts. I don't know if there are any. Uh, I'm sort of one, but not really. That is a French helicopter that the Russians are flying in, the Soviets <laughs> are flying in. One of the same helicopters that was used as the basis helicopter for Blue Thunder. Really? Yes. Okay. And in a very rare moment for this movie... <laughs> The sound of the helicopter is actually correct from the helicopter. Wow. Because this is how, I, and granted, I knew the ahead of time from this because Blue Thunder was my jam in 1982. But it has a very distinctive sound that the Blue Thunder helicopter has as well. Oh. And you can hear it sounds like <clears throat> it coming in. But I'm just like, so the Soviets had French helicopters? <laughs> I mean, they could have. They build only big, ugly helicopters. So maybe. Yeah. But I just it struck me as funny. Here comes this French helicopter, lands on there with all the red paint and red stars and everything. Yeah. I'm like, did they fly from Moscow in a helicopter? Yeah. That seems like a stretch. To India? Yeah. That's, that's a ways to go. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not really sure on that one. But anyway, helicopter lands, Orlov's in it. Bond ends up going through a different window into Magda's room. Sneaks past and out her door. Which she's like sitting at her makeup table. Right. You know she's on. But did she? I mean, Bond well, didn't I mean, see her doing the, the... Mirrors don't work in the Bond universe, apparently, the same is, way that they... At least in this, uh, this particular installment. This is true, but we do get the smirky smirk right after he leaves her room. Yes, she knows he's in there. Yeah. She, uh, she, she obviously can, She does. probably just hears footsteps or whatever. This or, is where you get your first impression that she doesn't necessarily work for Kamal Khan. Yes, because that's, now that's that, what that whole thing was for, was to imply that she's just kind of there as a way to help Octopussy. Right. It's sort of like, okay, so the boat's full of women, Octopussy is a woman, mm -hmm. maybe... Maybe, Magda, ev maybe maybe every woman in this movie is working for, for Octopus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but Bond then uses his uh, handy dandy earpiece. <laughs> well, 
He's following where the egg's at. Yeah. And I'm like, there's no change on his screen from <laughs> far away to up close. Yeah, it's just directional. Right? So, so it's, it's like, like it automatically knows he's close and then refocuses to I something mean, unless else. unless it beeps faster or something, like the light. Well, like the motion tracker in Aliens. Yeah, I don't know. They're it's in the higher. air, yeah. <laughs> Three meters. You can't be right, man. The meters are in the room. But anyway, Bond makes his way downstairs to where Orloff is meeting with Kamal Khan and Gobinda and the soon-to-be two meat locker guys um, <laughs> discussing fake jewelry, of all things. Yes. yes. And as the plot thickens here. And I got to admit, this one got a little muddled for me. As to what exactly the motivations were here until we got to the end. Yes. Because he didn't, it felt like they were intentionally trying to hide what the actual plot was until we got to the end. Yeah. But Bond's listening to this conversation and he's only getting bits and pieces of it because of the reception and because apparently a hairdryer that's three levels <laughs> higher than him is causing interference right. as Magda blow dries her hair. So dumb. Yeah. So basically all he gets out of the exchange is Karl Markstadt, right? Karl Markstadt. And then we, we find out that Khan is keeping the real jewels to sell. Right. And then they're taking the fake ones back to Russia so that the Russians don't they raise, don't realize they're gone. Yeah, they don't raise an eyebrow to it. As the conversation goes, Orlov then says that the uh, the thief of the egg must be eliminated. Isn't that the real egg that he crushes? No, that's the fake one. Where's the real egg? Be- oh, it might be the real egg. Because, because the look on Louis Jordan's face was this supreme disappointment when he broke it. Then they put the... The tracker's the, in the real egg. They put the tracker in the real egg. Yes. So Orlov... Man, I totally missed that. Okay, I'm glad so, I didn't. So that's the real egg that he smashed, and Correct. Orlov didn't realize that it was the fake. No, he thought... Orlov thought it was the fake egg. Did not that really, he was smashing. Yes. Because yes. I thought the look of shock was the fact that he saw the tracker in there. But he was shocked by the fact that he just broke well, the real yeah, egg. Yeah, because he broke the egg. Then there was a look of shock. But then he looks and he finds a tracker inside yeah. it and realizes, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh. Is, I'm not going to tell him about uh, this either. Is Octopussy listening in on what I'm saying? Octopussy. Octopussy. <laughs> so they, they finish the deal. And the two underlings, they take the, the chest full of jewels. And right. off they go. So... Orlov's chopper leaves. Bye-bye, Blue Thunder helicopter. <laughs> and Khan says, go get Bond. Get Bond. And just then, Bond is hiding in the corner of this freezer while the two thugs are bagging up the dead bodies, which is, you know, where we get our little, oh, that's why he's stuck in a freezer, because if you're smart enough to watch, you're going to know that yes. he's going to do something yeah, to Yeah, see his like, little light bulb goes off. And-, and this is one of those things, like the monkey suit later, when did he have enough time yeah, to yeah. get into that bag without anybody noticing? Yeah. There are some time discrepancies in this film. Yeah. Like, did he? how did he have enough time to put on a full thing of clown makeup? Professionally done. Yes. But not have enough time to hide the shirt that they found him with. Yeah. Uh, so many things. So we then see the guards running and yelling past Bond's room as Magda watches on smiling because she knows a thing. Yeah. Gobinda then rushes into Khan's office to tell him that Bond's escaped. Khan seems unfazed by this and says, don't worry, we'll track him because the hunt is on. Yeah. Let the sport begin. It is funny. He And I will say it is consistent with his character throughout the entire movie. He has this thing about him when there's a problem, he just, 
nothing to worry. I can do this. Right. Like, that's almost always his response. Yeah, there's just no general pissed off at the unfairness of James Bond being James Bond with this kind of (laughs) stuff. So we cut back from there to the freezer where the goons are picking up one of the bagged bodies. Bond sees the other body sitting there and ding, there he goes. So (laughs) we cut to the outside and Khan has organized a search hunt with elephants. Of course, because... You're in India, that's what you do. Right? I mean, they clearly had horses because they show up at the end. Right. But we're going to do elephants because we're in India. 1983. Different time. Different time. Uh, The thugs (laughs) then load uh, the bodies onto the Jeep, and as the second one goes down, we hear a slight... (laughs) (laughs) And they just look at each other in a sort of... Abbott and Costello, we meet Frankenstein sort of comedy moment, yeah. but nothing really comes sort of out of it. Dim bulbed thugs that, yeah. Oh, it must be nothing. Oh, it's just <laughs> gas escaping from the dead body. That's what it is. <laughs> the Jeep then rolls up with the dead bodies in the back, which is so weird. Okay, it's so weird that they put these bodies on the Jeep. The Jeep rolls literally like a hundred yards past the wall. So they're literally throwing dead bodies out into this area that's literally only like a hundred yards away from the the wall of the palace right like ah well it's fine the tigers will get them anyway it's fine well there's that whole pit of dead bodies that they hold them into with all the bones and everything well i mean that's what it's sort of there to imply is that right oh well you know the the wild animals will just come in right because you know wild animals are so well known for leaving the bodies where they find them Right. And keeping them piled up so that they have like a trophy case or something. (laughs) In no way do they ever take them away to work where it's safe to eat them. Not at all. But uh, (laughs) so the the two thugs get out. They grab the first body, huck it into the body pit of doom, (laughs) I guess, for lack of a better term. And then as they're getting ready to get the second body, uh, up comes James. <laughs> they all go running off, and then suddenly he can rip through a burlap sack with his bare hands. Like it's nothing. Like it's nothing. Pulls himself out. I'm free. I'm also wondering is the scary noise that he makes, was that really Roger Moore, or did they just get some random person to do the moo? It sounded like him. You think so? It really kind of did. All right. I'll At least it wasn't, you know, Obi Wan <laughs> Kenobi going. <laughs> <laughs> But it was equally as ridiculous. Um, so the guards on the wall of the palace see Bond and start shooting. And there had to be like 20 guys up there with rifles. And one so of them many. couldn't hit a guy in a white outfit running in the... <laughs> really? There were so many guys on that I wall. I know. It was almost just as unrealistic that there were that many guys up on the wall. Yes. As the fact that none of them could hit him. Not even by chance. I mean, odds are one of those bullets should have hit him if they'd aimed in the general direction. Right. But then Bond runs off into the forest, which I'm calling Bond's escape of peril. (laughs) Because they then try and throw in every possible jungle trope that you can possibly imagine into his escape. Which are there deep, Thick jungles in India? Is that a thing? I think they have forests and and some jungle, but (laughs) I mean, Jungle Book. Sure. Is that take place in India as well? Okay. I'm stupid. Never mind. Honestly, I don't don't know enough about it to be a professional on it. Everything I'm going on is Western (laughs) versions of India. Right. I guess whenever I think about jungles, I think about like South American jungles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like jungle, rainforest jungles, I I mean, guess. I suppose if we were to go to look at what the technical de- definition of a jungle was, <laughs> we could ascertain whether there are jungles in India. Or well, listen. I could just pick up this little black box sitting to my right and go, hey, Google, are there jungles 
in India. And it would say, I'm sorry, I don't understand what you're asking for. <laughs> and then I would throw it against the wall and be very mad and not want to finish the podcast. So let's not do that. All right. Moving on. The Bond's Escape of Peril. Yes. Which literally involves a tiger, tarantulas in a spider web. A Tarzan yell, a leech and an alligator. That's right. All in like five and a half minutes worth of screen time. Yeah. It is ridiculous. <laughs> so ridiculous. Literally, within 10 seconds of him entering the thick of this forest, there is a tiger immediately. Right. Well, you see, and it's walking. It's pacing, it's tracking, right? This is after he runs into the ridiculously thick amount of tarantula spider webs, <laughs> which I'm going to go which out Which he of, smashes on his elbow, I'm like, and it's like, oh, greasy yeah, and nasty. I'm, I'm like, like, did you not watch Raiders of the Lost Ark? <laughs> you just brush him off with your whip, dude. They don't even want to deal with you. They don't bite. Also, I'm going to also point out, while some tarantulas do make webs, they don't make webs like that. Right. Well, it was so like haunted house. I know. <laughs> the whole thing. That feels like it came out of Raiders of the Lost Yes, Ark. very much so. This whole bit here feels so Raiders-y. They tried to fit in every Raiders thing they could. Well, or they were hearkening back to the serials of the time in which the hero would have encountered all of these things in a five-minute span. Right. Because the serial was only 15 minutes long. and that, So that's all they had time to do. Right, exactly. So Bond runs through the, the spider web and kills a big old greasy spider, which that's just disgusting. Um, <laughs> and then the tiger comes jumping back at him. And this is so bad. I love it. Sit. Sit. <laughs> Why was what was the uh with the hand and the pointing of the finger? Sit, huh? And then the tiger sits. It's a well-trained wild tiger. I'm, yeah, well-trained wild tiger. You said it right there. So Bond jumps out of the brush and onto the trail, and we see Khan on top of his elephant, yelling that he has him in his sights. So Bond then goes to ground, hiding. Uh, everyone gets quiet trying to listen for him. It's really kind of funny. I was like, <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of close-up shots of attendance. People listening. And, listening. And we get the, the little snake come by and the, another bad line. Hiss off. <laughs> Is that what he said? Yeah, he says hiss off. Oh, my God. <laughs> the snake crawls over him. But as he's looking, he sees a strap that holds on to the, the carriage on top of the elephant. And he unbuckles it. Then when uh, Gabinda tries to to shoot to him, shoot him, the the kickback from the rifle knocks the whole thing uh, ass over tea kettle right onto the ground. <laughs> oh God! And then we get to the Tarzan moment, and it's just this is it is the slide whistle of this movie. It, it is the slide as he goes going from branch to branch on vines with the Johnny Weissmuller. At least it was the classic Tarzan yell. <laughs> and here's a quick question, and I don't know, you probably can't answer it, but no, it would have been Ben Burt. Never mind. I, I answered my own question. So in Return of the Jedi, which also came out in 1983, had many of the same actors and people in it because they were filmed in the same place. Right. <laughs> Chewbacca, the Wookiee. Oh, he does. Swings think. on to one of the ATSD walkers. Yes. And also and does, does a Wookiee Tarzan yell. Which is more endearing though because yeah, it's, it's a character at least yeah but i'm like was this a thing in 83 and then i'm like when did Greystoke legend of tarzan lord of the apes come oh out? and i'm gonna check right now because it's just occurred to me not to mention i will say 1984 
I'm pretty sure that when I was nine, I remember a Tarzan cartoon that used to double with Batman in oh, the mornings. It would, yep, it yeah. absolutely was. I would have been 81 to 83, probably. Yeah. So there must have been a Tarzan renaissance, as <laughs> it were. And people were trying to get that Everybody, thing squeezed in yeah, everywhere. squeeze that Tarzan yell in, man. Oh, my God. So... <laughs> Some pretty good vine to vine jumping there, I gotta say. Well, yeah, kudos to the stunt guy. I mean, he did a great job. I don't feel job. like there was any wires holding that guy up. No, no. It, I mean, and in 1983, that that checks out that there wouldn't be any wires holding that guy up. He Not was really. probably just doing it. It's probably like they brought in Johnny Weissmuller's stunt double. You think you can do it? All right, do it. <laughs> yeah, I've seen it. We can make it happen. So anyway, uh, Bond lands in the water. Well, and it's so stupid too that the Tarzan yell literally tells the bad guys exactly where he's at. Because yeah. you even get reaction shots from all the bad guys turning their heads in response to the Tarzan yell. It's not just there for comedic effect. It literally, Bond's literally shooting himself in the foot by doing the Tarzan yell. Right. <laughs> but, you know, we got to keep those stakes high. That's right. After all. That's right. So Bond lands in the water. Uh, as he's getting out, he's got a leech attached to him. Now... <laughs> Again, <laughs> I've never had a leech on me. Are they that quick? That's just what I'm saying. Immediately. Just it's like bam, immediately, bam, on right him. on them. <laughs> uh, and, and it's so bad looking. It's not, I mean, I know leeches are not really much to look at. Yeah. But that was clearly just some sort of like jelly thing that had some like ketchup or something underneath it. <laughs> I'm like, I'm surprised he didn't burn himself with how close he had that lighter next to him on it. I will say that my nine-year-old self was really grossed out by that thing, though. Uh, you know, it's the seti eel coming out of the year in Wrath of Khan, right? Yeah, yeah. Except on James Bond, who would obviously not have a set of eel because he was already in space, <laughs> not here. Uh, anyway, then as he's moving through this, after removing the slug, he's followed by an alligator because, like I said, Bond's- We got to fit it all it, in. It is we gotta get it Bond's all in. escape of peril. We need to have every single jungle trope you can possibly think of. <laughs> Before Bond gets away. But at this point, he gets past the alligator and has made it out of the forest of the jungle, wades out to a tourist boat. Which just happens to be there. Going by. And I'm, I'm also kind of like, Hovitos? Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Because, as he again. As he's swimming out there. Again, here stereotypes. Here come all the yep. natives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're all kind of, you know, pew, pew, pew. Uh-huh. But they're not. But I just, I don't know. Wakanamatuso! Exactly. I, I really just wanted I, if. <laughs> If Kamal Khan had been wearing a classic pith helmet. Yes. And then I'm like, you know, they could have just got Paul Freeman to do this. <laughs> he could do a French accent. That's right. <laughs> he would have been great. He actually would have been a really good Bond villain yeah. in anything. Yeah. I wonder why that never happened. Uh-huh. Seems like he would have been a natural choice. I guess people are like, yeah, but he's kind of Indy's villain. Yeah, there'd be too much of a direct connection. Maybe. not. Too We're just going to go ahead maybe. and steal a lot of things and not you know, right. attribute them to what we got them from yes. instead. <laughs> I do like the line when he gets in the boat, the lady asks him. Are you with our group? No, ma'am, I'm with the economy tour. <laughs> the the lady who asked the question, yeah. that's Michael G. Wilson's wife. Is it really? Yes. yes. Fantastic. And then Michael G. Wilson's standing like right next to her. Really? Yeah. From the Soviet Union? Yes. 
Well, he must have been on yeah. vacation. Yeah, well, you know. The, I mean, you could take a helicopter from, from Moscow <laughs> to India, clearly, so it must be a pretty easy trip for them, yeah. huh? Well, you know. Oh, and God, there is this really bad, stereotypical... Well, I mean, actually, it's a very accurate depiction of tourists, where the, one of the tourists, as they're drifting away, the tourist goes, Oh, I got a picture of a guy with a turban. Was just like uh, yeah. I was just like oh god no shut up just, you're terrible I hate yeah. you <laughs> highly highly realistic even now even not just na- in 1983 indeed because unfortunately it's the same time yes <laughs> <laughs> and so with that we conclude the Bond Escape of Peril <laughs> and also part one of our review of Octopussy. Because man, this just this thing just goes and goes and goes. Well, you know, I think it's just because Louis Jordan just says "octopusy" so many times that we're just we're stunned every time it happens. <laughs> we just pause and reminisce. And- That's right. <laughs> Say it a few times in our own heads. <laughs> And then we have to move along. Yes. But be sure to uh, come back because we will have the stunning conclusion very, very soon. Oh, it'll be so stunning. But uh, as always, we're always looking for listener interaction um, to tell us what you think about our interpretation of Octopussy (laughs) or what you think about Octopussy. So you can reach us by email at CICDeadDrop at gmail.com, on Instagram, Central Intelligence Cinema, separated by underscores, or on X. What's X, Ben? (laughs) Well, it used to be known as this little bird icon, and now it's just a weird X from the 90s that's distressed. (laughs) I don't know. He even distressed the logo like it's the 90s, like it's or early aughts. Or maybe he's just trying to indicate the company's uh, welfare or state and welfare in general. (laughs) Right. Well, anyway. We're on there still. It's at CIC Spy Pod. And we are on a whole bunch of other social medias, all of which you can find the links to at the bottom of our show description of this very episode. So uh, please uh, get in touch. Say hi. But uh, with that, I think, uh, should we just get out of here for now? Yeah, they've, they've listened enough. It's time. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, with that, I'm Ben. And I'm Jason. And the CIC will return with more emissions, more martinis, and more mayhem.